Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good afternoon. Welcome to SOGCast number two. Today, we're going to tell a second SOG story. And for our new first-time listeners, SOG was the secret war in Vietnam for eight years, conducted across the fence, Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. The Green Berets ran missions across the fence for eight years, and afterwards they, they were not able to talk about those for 20 years. So today, courtesy of Jocko Willink and his production company, we are going forward with more stories about SOG and the secret missions. I'd like to introduce today's guest, James Henry Shorten Jones, with a fascinating story and probably one of the most unique stories in all of SOG history, uh, particularly amongst the Special Forces soldiers, and we'll get into that in the details as we go along. Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me to come. (laughs) Well, it's an honor to have you, and uh, to this day, every time you and I talk about different aspects of your missions, it still like blows my my little tiny mind to tell you the truth of the matter. And um, if you like, we could just talk a little bit about your history that got you into the military, and it's unique in and of itself, how it all started with you being born in England, and take it from there with a little bit of background so our audience would know who you are and how you got to eventually run missions in SOG. So you want me to go from England up as fast as I could up to SOG time? As quick as you could. Okay. So I was born in Liverpool, England. My family were Scouts. That's the Irish that went to Liverpool, England to work on the ships. And so I'm Irish. So I came over to the United States when I was 11 years old and um, lived all over the country, uh, ended up in California. And when I was 17, I wanted to join the Navy to go see the world. So I I wasn't a citizen, so I became a citizen in 1964. And um, from there, I went to go see the world, but I ended up getting, uh, I ended up getting uh, uh, stationed in Arizona. And, um, and so from, from there, from in Arizona, what I was doing, I took up, um, I, I worked on the fuel farm for a while, uh-huh. uh, fueling the jets. And it was the old jets, the T-33s, the, uh, what do you call those other things with the tri-tails on them? Um, uh, Super Constellations, all these DC-3s. Oh yeah, yeah, I worked on all those planes. So um, from there, uh, uh, I, I became a dental assistant, and I worked in the dental office as a dental assistant. And then uh, they had a, the captain retired, and they put a commander in there. And then the commander didn't want me in there because I wasn't school trained, even though I, I knew everything that I needed to know there. And... Uh, so from there, I became a lifeguard. And from the lifeguard at the pool, <laughs> I went ahead and I, I, I got orders to go to, to Norfolk, Virginia to work on the USS Arlington, which is the AGMR-2 as a communication ship. It was an old aircraft carrier. They put right. antennas on the, on the surface, um, on the flight deck. So um, it took forever for that ship to become um, you know, commissioned. Seaworthy. Yeah, become commissioned and yeah. stuff. So I volunteered and worked on tugboats for three months, and I really enjoyed working on tugboats. Hard work, but you know the guys were E eights, 
in uh, E6s and stuff uh, as a commander. They're so just, you eventually get to Vietnam with the Navy. Yeah, so from there, then I worked on USS Denebola, went overseas on a med cruise, came back. Then I heard there was they were, they were looking for guys who wanted to go do shore duty in Vietnam. And I'm going, uh, shore duty in Vietnam? I said, where's Vietnam? And they go, and this chief looks at me, he goes, we're fighting a war in Vietnam. I go, really? I says, I'll go. So <laughs> he goes, it's a war. I says, I don't care. I'll go. I'll go. Yeah. So, so I decided to go to, uh, to go there. And uh, they sent me to SIR training and a bunch of other survival training and stuff. And from there, I went to Da Nang, Vietnam. And I, I liked it there. You know, I'm, uh, I stayed there for 22 months. And this um, is 1964, 65? Um, 66. Yeah. 66, I went. So uh, in 66, what I did is I, um, I stayed there for 22 months. I had a girlfriend. She taught me how to speak Vietnamese. Indeed. And uh, so I had the, I had that <laughs> under my belt, and uh, I worked with cargo handling battalion two CHP two, and uh, shored up ships, spliced cables, that sort of thing. Worked well, then with, also in your travels up and down Highway One, you picked up some hitchhikers that that tweaked your interest in special forces. Yes, yes. In Da Nang, uh, I was stationed at um, Marble Mountain. No, right. Monkey Mountain. Monkey Mountain. Monkey yeah. Mountain. Marble Mountain was at the other end where uh, CCN was. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I picked up these green beanies that were sitting there hitchhiking on the road, you know, when I was driving trucks. And they told me a little bit of stuff, what they were doing and stuff. And so anyway, I, I was thinking about becoming a Navy SEAL. And then that song came out from Barry Sadler, only three out of 100 make it. And I go, bullpucky, I can make that. So I went ahead and <laughs> so I went ahead and just went into the Army. I came back to the States, joined the Army, took my battery test as a civilian. And, um, oh, and I, I couldn't get in the Army at first because I had a GED. I quit school when I ran away from home and joined the Navy. Yeah, um, naturally. So I, I was 21 years old when I went back to high school. And so, <laughs> so I'm in San Diego, and they said, well... We'll give you a thing. We want you, we'll give you a diploma, but we want you to take California history and government first. Yeah, yeah, I can I can hear that. Um, so anyway, I went ahead and uh, uh, to, taken history, California history and government. There it is. That's better. So I, I was taking California history and government, and um, uh, the principal came in. The principal comes into the room and he goes, uh, "Hey, we want to see you in the office." So I go down to the office. And says, We're just going to give you a diploma. <laughs> so they get my diploma. So then I went into the army, and I went through basic at right. Fort Ord. Then I went through advanced infantry training, and I was the outstanding trainee of the cycle. I got that little trophy and the certificate and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, out of the whole group. And then uh, from there, I went to jump school, which I was already skydiving, so it was no big deal for me. So from there, I went to Fort Bragg. So they put me into communications like yours truly certainly o5b4s you were yeah and yeah. they put me into that but i couldn't get that diddy dum dum diddy fast enough so i went up to him i said look i'm gonna fail if i i can't get this stuff fast enough i says look i said i worked with cbs over in vietnam i said i'm i'm good at math put me in engineers so they did they took me out of communications put me in engineers and that was a piece of cake for me wow. so i went through that and then um, then i kept hearing people talking about ccc all talking about CCC. Well, or you're, CCC now you're in CCC. country with Vietnam? No, this has been training Back group. Back still was in, in training group. Huh? Yeah, when I was in phase two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Whirly. It was Whirly and a guy named Kelly or something. And uh, they're, they're sitting there saying, whatever you do, don't go to CNC. I go, why not? Because you get yourself killed going to CNC. Because well, now I got to go to see if I can get myself killed. <laughs> so <laughs> The challenge, the gauntlet has been thrown that's down. That's right. Yeah. Indeed. So so I decided, you know, I'm going to go there. So when I got there, I was going to go to I was going to go to Da Nang. I wanted to go to Da Nang. So I talked to this uh, uh, 
uh, uh, command sergeant major that was there at the COT course, the combat orientation course. Right. And I told him, I said, hey, I'd like to get orders to, uh, to Da Nang. And he goes, well, let me see what I can do. So I talked to some guy. It was uh, some guy I knew from back when I was in Da Nang. So it was uh, from uh, a, a native Indian guy, you know, right. from India. And he goes, now you don't go to Da Nang. He says, it's really bad now. It's no, no fun up there no more. And so um, I went ahead and went back. To, I, I was sitting at the little bar. And this guy comes walking uh, walk in. And he goes, yeah. He says, uh, I just left A502. It's one of the best duty stations you can get. And I said, uh, really? He goes, tell me about it. So he told me. And so I went down to headquarters. And I met this guy named Micah, Sergeant Micah. Mike, right. Mike Micah. And I said, um, hey, Sergeant Micah, I said, I want to go to A502. I heard this guy just left, so there's room for a guy. And he goes, well, if anybody's going to A502, I'm going. And I go, <laughs> really? So I was all kind of busted up, you know, and I go go back to the bar, and all of a sudden I see Micah walk into the bar. He goes, hey, Jones. He says, guess what? We're both going to A502. So he got us both orders. So we went ahead and went to A502. So I was there, and uh, the CEO was Major McBride, John McBride. He went ahead and sent me on down to this little outpost called Suiyao, which is on the other side of the Dongbo Valley. You know, if you look in Nantrang and you look at all the mountains, right. it's on the other side of those mountains. There's a, on the highway that goes north out of Nantrang, uh, it goes to the west, I guess it is, right? West, and then goes south to Cameron Bay. Right. So I, there was an outpost out there, and so that's where I was. I was there for oh, a couple of weeks with a guy named Bill Hefferman, and he ended up getting commissioned and so, you know, I said, hey, I'd like to take over that outpost. He goes, well, you haven't got much time in country. I go, yeah, I've been here for a couple of years. Come on. <laughs> so I went <laughs> forgot down. forgot about and, your Navy time. Yeah, I forgot my Navy yeah. time. And I could talk to the guys. They were all CIDG, right? So regular, sure. regular defense groups. So, it was, um, so I went down there and, and uh, I stayed there. I stayed there for a whole time. Mondays was my day off. So they'd send a couple of guys down to Jeep. And right. they would stay there, and I'd take the Jeep, and I'd go downtown and, you know, get laid or something, you know. Indeed, or something. Yeah. So then wind, when did you wind up going to CCC? Well, that, that at, 18, at 18 turned over to Regional Popular Forces. Right. And so when it did, I volunteered. This is the end of 69? Um, no, this, yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it was around 69. Yeah. So what I did is uh, I put in, I said, I want to go to CCC and, uh, or to CNC. So they sent me to Contum. And at the time, uh, there was a guy, uh, Gary, um, um, what's Gary's last name? Gary, he, we just got him the, the beret. Um, anyway, so uh, Gary, Gary and I, uh, I told, Gary asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going to go to CNC. And he goes, really? I go, yeah. I says, why not? And he goes, I'll go with you. So Gary and I went to CCC together. Not Gary Mike Rose. No. 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 Uh, <laughs> No, he was there, though. He was our medic up there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, he was a great guy. I saw him when I came back. I was at Brack, and I, we bumped into each other. Yeah. He was going to give me his banana knife. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah, it was on the wall. I, I said, I never got my banana knife when I left CNC. Tell, explain what the banana knife is oh, from CCC. You see, when you, when, you leave, uh, when you leave Recon or whatever, they give you this chrome-plated banana knife. Yeah. Gary Stuckey. That was Gary's last name, Stuckey. So uh, they gave you this chrome plate of banana knife with all the little things on the blade and all that stuff and on a plaque. And I never got mine. So uh, <laughs> so Gary Gary and I walked over to headquarters and he was going to pull it off the wall and said, here, take this one. I go, no, I don't want that one. I want mine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So if I have to go make one, I'll make it, you know, or something. So never got around to it. But So eventually you 
you're there. You're on a recon team. Your recon team was Delaware. Yeah. When I first got there, uh, they, they, they put me on RT Delaware, and Dan Sturr was the one zero of that team. And he was, I guess, just putting it together or whatever, but he didn't have any Americans. So uh, he asked me if I would be his 1-1, assistant team leader. So I said, okay. So And then we had another guy, uh, Gary Harned. Gary Harned came with us too, but Gary was... Gary was uh, sadly killed on his next mission. Right, I remember. Yeah, with RT Pennsylvania. The whole team got wiped out. Um, but anyway, so we went out there on the mission and stuff, and they were supposed to put us down between a regiment, I mean, outside of a regiment and a battalion, and our job was to recon through and find out what they're doing, you know, and stuff, this sort this of thing. This is your first mission with RT First Delaware. mission, yeah, with yeah. RT Delaware. And what they did is they put us right between them because of those old French maps that they had. Right. You know, ones that had the big white spots on them that label clouds. <laughs> you know, can't see where you are, you know. So anyway, so they put us out there between this, and uh, they just let us land, and they tried to capture us for like three days before they would. They kept saying, break contact, continue mission, break contact, continue. Really? Oh, yeah. And they said, no, we got to get out of here. So what we did is we, they, we, uh, uh, Dan, uh, we were sleeping on a hill. You know, you get a hill like, like this and you got these trees like this. Sure. Well, you can't walk on it, but we just straddle the trees and we'd sleep at night. And that's how right. we did it. Next morning we wake up and these guys are running through banging bamboo and making noise, trying to chase us out of the bushes, you know, kind of like, like we're wild animals. And, um, so then they, what they did is they, um, they finally, uh, Dan finally convinced them to get us out of there. So they blew an abatis. That's where you blow a tree down and it's still connected so you can't move it. Right. So they blew the tree down and then uh, I was on the first chopper out. So two yards come running across the tree to get into the chopper. And I go out there and I go to get in the chopper. And the chopper's taken off. And I'm hanging on the strut. No. I, I kid you not. I'm hanging on the strut <laughs> and I'm going, doesn't anybody see me here? And this chopper's <laughs> taken off, you know. And I can see the Montyard up there. He, you know, the, our tribe person. And he's yelling at the gunner, you know, look down, look down. So I, they finally look down and his eyes, I see these big eyes looking at him. He goes, hey, we got a guy hanging on a strut. <laughs> so anyway, so they, they both reached down. They got in their bellies and reached down. They grabbed my arms and I had to let go. And I'm going, oh my gosh, don't let go of me. Yeah. So they finally, they pulled me up and got me in there. As soon as I got my foot on the strut, I kicked myself back and got in there welcome to song yeah i gave my i gave my martin yard a big kiss so. oh yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> and so after you'd been there for a few missions and things changed you become the one zero of uh, rt delaware right after that mission when we came back to doc toe we landed and, and uh, doc toe was a launch site for, it was a launch site for, for ccc yeah ccc correct so um right there on the airstrip and so um what happened was uh, Dan said, I, I just don't want to do this no more. I said, I'm done. I said, I'm done running these missions. Dan had a lot of missions under his belt. I mean, he was a great, great soldier, really Absolutely. good guy. Yeah. But it was just time to, it was just time for him to get out of it. And so I didn't know this until the last time we went to SOAR, uh, you know, Special Operations Reunion. Right. And Dan told me, he goes, yeah, I recommended you to be the one zero. I'm going, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you become the one zero, you ran a few missions. And then finally, when you're in between missions, um, they came up to you with a with a deal. They said we have a bright light mission. Would you would you help us with it? And would you take another team, which would have been another recon team? And so your answer to that was, well, what happened is the, the sergeant, the first sergeant comes walking, recon sergeant comes yeah. walking across the compound, and I'm just kicking back, you know, my hands in my pocket, walking over to get a soda or something. And uh, he goes, "Hey Jones," he goes, "Your team's down, right?" And I go. Yeah, I gave him a week off. 
And uh, he goes, huh? you know, RT Delaware, they, uh, you know, they're one zeros on a 30 day leave. It was Steve Kiever. And uh, he goes, how would you like to take uh, RT Illinois up there for a bright light stand down up at Docto? I said, sure, I don't care. So I went over and introduced myself to RT De- uh, Illinois. And uh, did I say Delaware before? You did. Yeah, it's I- Illinois. Yeah, RT Illinois, Illinois. Yeah. So and so I went up to um, Docto with them. And uh, as soon as we got there, we heard that there was a team in trouble. They got hit with a bunch of enemy, I mean, large force. And they had to get the team out of there. So they got most of the team out. But one of the guys, the rope broke and right. he fell to his death. So uh, that's a, what they call the strings, you know, stay buried. So they asked us to, to go in there. And I says, uh, how many enemy and how close are they? He says, they're right on top of them. And I'm going, oh, no. I says, okay, here's the deal. I says, I don't have time for two helicopters. I just want one helicopter, and I'll just take two guys and myself. So what, what happened was Steve Kieber comes bebopping up. He comes, <laughs> he comes up in a helicopter. He comes yeah. back, and he comes walking up. And I go, Steve, I thought you were on three days leave. He goes, yeah, I just got back. I go, really? He goes, I'm going on a bright light. You want to go? And what's he going to say? No. Yeah. <laughs> That's his team, right? Yeah, sure. So, so he goes, yeah. He says, uh, I'll go. And I can just see his little wheels turning. He goes, I just got back from three days leave and now I'm going to go die. You know, so so <laughs> I told him what the mission was and I said, you want to take it? And he goes, no, you've already been briefed on the whole thing. You take the team in. I'll go as the 1-1. So his 1-1 came as the 1-2. So we go ahead and we fly out there and repel in. And we couldn't get down to the ground. I mean, it's triple, triple canopy, you know, over 100 feet. Because those ropes yeah, are over so 100 you feet leave, long. You leave Docto, you go to the target, you're right. over the target, and you're going down the ropes, and you realize you're not enough rope. Not enough rope to get on the ground. So the chopper just went right down, just right down through the trees, and just, just started chopping down all the trees and everything, trying to get us down the ground. We finally got <laughs> off, got off of the yeah. ropes and stuff. And then another cobra flew over, and he goes, because my code name was the Wild Carrot. So he goes, hey, Carrot, follow me. So, so I follow him. And sure enough, I could see the rope in the tree where this other guy fell. We had to go about 100 meters. So we got up there, and I, I get uh, I find the guy, and he's kind of like half buried in the dirt and stuff. So right. we dig him up. And and, and this this uh, this team member is an indigenous troop. He's a Montagnard. Yes. Killed from falling from the tree, but you find his body, and he's part of the team. Yeah. Uh, one of my team members, his name was um, you. It's uh, Y-U... I think it's YL, something like Yule. Yeah. But anyway, something like that. But uh, it was his brother-in-law that was actually killed. So anyway, so when uh, we got there, we bricked the guy. They had the chopper came over, dropped the ropes. We hooked him up, and we can hear the enemy coming up the hill. They're screaming and yelling right. coming up the hill. And so we got him hooked up. I got the body hooked up. They hooked me up. I hooked the other guys up and told them to get us out of there. So as they're lifting up and trying to get us up above the trees before they take off, uh, the bullets are flying all over the place. So the chopper's taking hits. But as we get up a little bit higher, then we can see the enemy through the trees. And they're, they're shooting at us. None of us got hit. But you can hear the bullets going whizzing by us. Oh, yeah. Because they're shooting up. So it loses the sound barrier. You don't get that crack, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, but anyways, and then as he starts taking off, and we're up about, I don't know, probably about three, 400 feet up off the trees. Yeah. This a when Sky Raider comes right down underneath me. Just right down underneath me, and he just looks up at me and just kind of waves at me, and I'm holding on to the dead guy, and I just kind of wave back at him, you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's firing flechettes, right? You know? And so then we just got out of there, but you can feel the brass coming down. Brass would hit us a little bit until he picked up enough speed. So and but, I remember and he, too. I think that at that moment, as you're coming out, you had that come to Jesus moment where you said, "Dear God, 
Oh yeah. Get us out of here. Yeah. As you reload your car 15. And yeah. Try to hang on to the. And we're shooting comrade. down at the bad guys. Yes, sir. Yeah. No, I did. I said I was holding on to the guy with dear life, and I'm going, dear God, get us out of here. <laughs> you know, and and for our first time listeners, when you come out on ropes, you're all sweaty. You're under a firefight, and then you lift up, and you're all of a sudden you're at four thousand feet. What does that feel like? To me, I loved it. <laughs> and how cold? <laughs> well, you know, everybody said it was really cold, but you know, I really don't remember if it was cold or not. But I remember I've I've been I've flown strings before by myself. Yeah. And you know, you feel like you're the flying nun. You just bring your arms out and just fly <laughs> around, and it was really kind of cool. The only thing I didn't like is when uh, some of those pilots would get really kind of get on. You know, they they go, hey, let's. Skip show this guy a real good time. And they take you and they dip you into a bomb crater yeah. full of water. Oh, yeah. yeah we well, didn't have that problem. Yeah. At we, least I didn't personally, but they, they did to you? Or yeah, what? down yeah. at Longtown. They used to do it all the time because <laughs> I used to teach it. Yeah, right. I, I rode strings, I think, 16, 17 times. So but they they dip us in and out of the water all the time and get us sopping wet because you can't do anything. So when you got back to Dock Toad, a launch site, what shape was the helicopter in? Oh, that chopper, well, all the skin was on the, gone from the bottom of the rotor. You know, you can see all the, I guess it was a balsa wood or something. They had balsa wood props uh-huh. or something. I can't remember. Uh, but all the skin was gone. And uh, the chopper had uh, had a few holes. I don't know how many holes it had in it, but it had a few holes in it. Uh, none of us got hurt, but it was it was a good mission. We made it all the way back. And really fast mission with just three guys. Went in and got them yeah, out. Yeah, it's one of the few three-man <coughs> bright lights. <coughs> Excuse me. Successful that I'm aware of. And then... Um, one of the unique things about special forces in general, and I think at the end of this mission, you had the epitomization of those moments where the the ties between the Americans on special forces and, in your case, the Montagnards. Because afterwards, um, you were back in your room, and then uh, one of the Montagnard relatives came in. Yeah, it was Yol. Yol. Yeah, he came in, and he gave me a bracelet. A yard bracelet and said, "Thanks for bringing my brother back." Brother in law, thank you for risking your life to bring back my brother to bring yeah, him home. Exactly. I mean, just to think about that for a minute, that just shows that that tight rapport. And here we had three green berets from Contum that went out on a bright light, and you had how many hundreds of NBA did they the cubby at the end tell you how many were coming? To, oh, coming? they estimated around three hundred fifty. Yeah, so it'd be three versus three fifty. Yeah. So well, what's the kill ratio for a green a SOG guy? What is it? <laughs> one to 50 bad guys or one to a hundred bad guys? Or you know, I never, I never I heard that know. officially, but uh, I'll take I'll take your, your advice on that, sir. So <laughs> two weeks later, RT Delaware does get a mission. Yeah. And I wanted to just to talk a little bit about this because this is what will lead to one of the more uh, historic notes in, in SOG history for your personal involvement, plus your team's valor on the ground that particular day. They came in, you had a, a briefing that there's a bright light mission. It would be in Laos, or no, Cambodia. Yeah, Cambodia. And that there were, uh, F-4 went down. Right. And that uh, there were two pilots, because usually there'd be a pilot and a backseater. Right. But in this case, they had, had two, two pilots. pilots in it. And it crashed, and a lot of enemy activity. The Air Force had tried to get them out. They were not able to get them out, and they come to Contum. And yeah. uh, you were told that the Air Force F-4, codename Cobra 83. No, 84. Well, 83 made a pass over to site right. where Cobra 84 had crashed. 
and they were and the Cobra 84 had been in the process of making a bombing run on a bridge site and they skipped over a couple hilltops and then it came to rest in the third slot so you get a briefing this is your mission take yeah. it from there so uh, you launched from Docto what's the size of your team who was on oh and you picked up an extra team member at that time who had combat experience from World War II yeah. and Korea You're right and here he comes yeah Homer Homer Hungerford um, he was 20 years older than me and a lot of guys didn't want him on, on their teams because they figured he was an, oh, too old to be running that kind of missions if you right. had to run your butt off so uh, but being a new guy you know being a new guy in, in SOG and everything a lot of guys didn't know me and so um, what I did is I went over to Homer and I said hey Homer I says I need a 1-1 would you like to be my 1-1 and he says sure I'd like to so Homer uh, ran with me on those missions and uh, so anyway I'm walking across the compound and stuff and then they said hey Jones why don't you go ahead and stand down bright light up at uh, Doc Toe so we get up there and then we got the mission and they br briefed us on that mission but they said we're going to hold off right now the Air Force is going to try and go now I think they said, try to send the PJs in but it was just too hot it was just way too hot for them to, to get in there and try to get go down and get the bodies out so they asked us if we would go do it so we went in and as I'm going in on the helicopter, I remember looking down and I saw the bridge and I saw the Hoochman Trail and I'm going, oh my gosh, where, what am I getting myself into here, you know? Yeah, Because sure. I see this Hoochman Trail right there, you know? And you see the bridge there trying to bomb. And, yeah. And, yeah. And one thing I noticed is the road had all the bamboo ro woven across the top of it, all the trees. Uh -huh. They would tie the trees over the road. So oh, you could see the bridge, but you, could, you can also see where they were tying the trees you know, looking down on the bridge because yeah. they didn't try to hide the bridge. And uh, so this jet came down. He made a pass and his first pass was long or something like that. So he came down again and made another pass. And then I think it was short or whatever, but he got hit with a 51 caliber, lost his hydraulics and hit the first hill, you know, the 8-4, Cobra 8-4. So when it hit the first hill, it hit the second hill and landed on the third hill. So that's where it came to rest. Is that's on right. Three. On the three, on the third yeah. hill. So what I did is uh, we got in there and I, I got down and I'm waiting there. You know, like when you first get off that chopper after flying high altitude like that coming in, you sure. can't hear anything. Oh, you yeah. know? And so I'm waiting and, and it was all soot, all soot and burned out from when the jet went through because of the fire. And then the um, uh, the next chopper comes in and it's blowing everything all around. I remember I get, my pants were torn all the way across my butt. You know, from what? From the, the twirling bamboo and stuff wheeling around. No it, kidding. Yeah, caught me right across the butt, tore my pants. So I'm walking around with a white butt showing, you know, so. Any brain damage? No. Yeah, oh yeah, it had to be brain damage <laughs> to do those kind of missions. <laughs> so so anyway, we got together and we waited and waited for the sticks to drop out of the trees and wait for it to get quiet and try to listen to and any again, kind of you movement. Climbed, you, you climbed into that from, yeah, down from the a ladder. ladder. Yeah, a ladder, but it was a short ladder. It was only maybe uh, seven runs or something like that, you know, it was a yeah, short still, ladder. Yeah, the helicopter hovers. You climb down a ladder into the soot and everything. Yeah. You get your your butt sliced open with a bamboo. Now you're just waiting to go on your mission. Yeah. Okay. So, so and, and I, had, I used to put a bandana around my head. Yeah. You know, and it came over my eyes. So I'm going down. And I can't see anything because my bandana is <laughs> over my eyes. Oh no. So, so anyway, so I get down on the ground and uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for the next chopper to come in, and then we wait for a little bit, and then we start walking down the hill. So we walked down, and as we were walking down, I noticed it's nice and clear and everything, and I started seeing bunkers. And so I looked off to, as we got down at the bottom in the flat area there, I looked off to the right, and I see three enemy. And one guy's got a weapon on me, 
And the other two guys are behind the bushes. And I figured if they were going to shoot, they were already shot. So I told my guys, I said, Kom Sung, you know, don't shoot. And so and so I looked over and I told him, I says, D, you know, like. Yeah, Diddy, go. Yeah, Diddy Mao or whatever, get out of there. And so they left. And so I just, I went on down a little bit further. And all of a sudden I see this big building, a 20 by 20 uh, 20 by 20 foot by 20 foot building out of bamboo on stilts and next to it I see this graveyard with a communist star over the top of it and I'm sitting there going where the heck am I you know kind of yeah. thing. and there's bunkers all over the place so we start as we start walking up the hill the first find, hill yeah the, the yeah the, the, the first hill the jet impacted on its crashing no that's the first hill we landed on and okay. then the, the second hill right we were going up that hill the um, we found a boot and there was a foot, a foot in the boot, but that boot turned And what up, kind of boot was it? It was an American boot. It was a jungle boot. A jungle boot. American jungle boot, but it had an indigenous foot in it. So, and it which wasn't we didn't, none of your team members. <laughs> no. And we didn't know this until after we, we put it in a rucksack, took it with us, and they sent it to Saigon, and Saigon came back and told us that, that's what it was. Wow. So, and then I went through the graveyard, and I, I couldn't read the names. They had rocks on there, but I couldn't read any of the names. It was uh, like somebody wrote on the rocks with a pencil or something is what it looked like. It was really hard to read. Um, but when DPA went back there, eventually they went through and they found 13 graves there. I only thought there was like six or seven. So they must've been putting two or three people right. in one grave. And and so back then, this was the equivalent of today's DPAA where the American yeah. government goes back working in conjunction with other agencies to recover remains. And they were attempting to go back on that mission. Yeah. To recover the two pilots. That, you that was their. Had. That was their third. That was their third attempt to try and get in there. Right. The first two attempts, they got hit with bandits. You know, people scavenging the metal. You know, people are going out there trying to get tigers. So let's get back um, to your on the second hill now. You're climbing up the second hill, and and then all of a sudden, I can hear the trucks coming up. I can hear the movement on the Ho Chi Minh Trail with people coming up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right, and we're in Laos, so you know it's not no, Cambodia. U.S. Marine Corps, anybody coming to rescue. This is the North Vietnamese Army coming for your ass. Exactly. Yeah. So And so I figured, well, you know, maybe I can get up there and get these guys out of here before these guys come. So I'm going up the hill, and all of a sudden, I hear, you know, you know when a bullet goes over your head and it's breaking the sound barrier, you get that crack, 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 crack. Uh, that that like, AK-47 pick- crack. Well, no, this was this was seven six two crack. It was yeah. the, it was the miniguns. Oh, okay. Yeah, and but you can't tell where it's coming from, right? Right. Yeah, you because know, it cracks right over the top of your head. So I'm going, what the heck is somebody shooting at me? How come I'm still alive? You know. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I feel the sticks falling down, sticking to me because I'm sweaty and everything. Sure. So uh, the sticks are coming down, and I go, "Hey, what the hell's going on up there?" And he goes, "You got six tro- truckloads of enemy and armored cars coming after you, and a bunch of troops running behind them." I'm going, oh, great. You know, so. But what had happened here was Covey had a gun run by a Cobra. Yeah. Um, it was either a Cobra or, or a, I think it was a Cobra. I, to be yeah. honest, I can't remember if it was Before a Cobra the or a Spad. Got there. Yeah. But so you're on the ground. Normally, the one zero would call in an airstrike. In this right. case, Covey called in the airstrike without telling you. And like all of a sudden, you're covered with dirt. Luckily, yeah. nobody in your team was wounded because the uh, gunships made a tight run. Danger oh, close. It, it was really close. It Danger was right close. overhead. Yeah. I mean, right overhead. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <clears throat> but, so we, we get up to the top of that hill and when we get up to that hill. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking around and it's all wiped out. You can see patterns on the ground where there was hooches that got wiped out when the jet went through. And I said. And that would I, be on hill two, correct? A second hill. Yeah. yeah. And so I had Homer. 
I said, Homer, take a couple of guys, run through the village. And he runs one direction. I go the other direction. We're going through and we're picking up stuff. We picked up pith helmets. We picked up officers' uniforms, uh, belts, um, medicinal bottles, uh, bandages, all kinds of stuff. And sometimes they can evaluate that stuff and find out where it comes from and who actually has it. Sure. You know, which unit it is. So we went ahead and got all that stuff and put it in a rucksack. And so uh, then the, the gunships, you know, covey overhead says, look, we got to get you out of there. He says, if we don't get you out of there now, we're going to have to stay there so uh, and pick you up tomorrow because they were running out of ammo, running out of fuel, and there was a storm coming in. So I had no choice. I had to get, I couldn't make it to the third hill. But when I got up there, when I got up to that hill, I, I saw a bomb laying there. And I thought maybe, they, actually, I thought it was a bantrong at first. So, and a bantrong is? Is when so many, when like you get all these, this one unit over here and another unit over here and they lose so many men. Right. They take those men, they send them to the bantrong, they regroup, make another unit and send them back out to other units. And the NVA down the Ho Chi Minh Trail had those. Uh, bantrongs all over. They yeah. had those every 15 to 20 miles. As they travel south, they'd have these areas that they could rest, recuperate, get some food, and continue their movement south as it, with the troops and supplies to then go off the Ho Chi Minh Trail into South Vietnam right. to battle tr- traditional American forces as well as our allies in South Vietnam. Exactly. Yes, sir. So so anyway, so um, I told him, I said, okay, well, I had to think of my guys. I had to get my guys out because they would have killed the yards. And chances are I probably would have killed Homer, too, for his age. And um, so I said, okay, come in. And so they came in the first chopper. And so Homer went ahead, and uh, he got in the first chopper with a couple in indige. And they got them out of there. And then, Were they lifted out on strings, or was it? They, they dropped a ladder. They dropped the ladder? They dropped the ladder, and then you just hook on the ladder and just yeah. ride the ladder back. Um, so anyway, they got them out. So the next chopper comes in, and I told him, because the enemy, I can hear him coming through the bushes. And I told him, I says, hey, I want you guys, I want the chopper to come in. I want Cobra gunships on both sides shooting like crazy down to these trees because they were getting ready to come back behind me as well. So what they did is they, they, when the chopper came in, they were shooting like crazy. And just as they were, I don't know, they had to be maybe 100 yards away. And then all of a sudden the enemy started coming through the bushes. And they started, we were shooting like crazy trying to keep them down. One of the guys got an RPG fired off. And it went off to the side of me. I got hit in the arm, hit in the chest, and I still got some shrapnel in here. Um, so anyway, got got that taken care of. And then the uh, they came in, and as a chopper comes in, we get on the ladder, and we're still shooting, and the gunner's shooting like crazy. And then the uh, Cobra gunships are still shooting like crazy, trying to keep everybody down that hill. And so anyway, we, we the chopper starts lifting up. Oh, and right before we got on the chopper, all of a sudden I hear this ba-boom, like this really loud bang. And you're, and you're again, you're, you're climbing up a ladder. Yeah, I'm climbing up a ladder. And a ladder to a helicopter, hovering, waiting to get you guys out. Right. Enemies coming out of the jungle towards you, yeah. firing a full automatic. You guys yeah. are defending yourselves. And then you hear this boom. Yeah. Like and it is. Boom, boom, really quick. Like, okay, yeah. Right back together. And I'm going. He just got hit with an RPG. This thing's going to come down on top of me. That's the first thing in my head. And all of a sudden, I see him keep lifting up, and I'm going, what the heck happened? You know. So I climb up in there, and I tell the pilot, and I go, look back there. So we, we're getting away. So he looks down, and I said, you see the patterns on the ground? I said, it's a friggin' enemy village. Yeah, it's a friggin' enemy village. So, um, so anyway, they got us up out of there. And as we're getting up, I could see the trucks and everything down at the bottom, down there and everything. So they take off and we just make it on back to, back to Docto. And um, that was pretty much that, that was that mission. 
but it always bothered me because I couldn't, you know, because I, I, that's actually, I ran close to some, all close to 50 missions and, um, not all with SOG, of course. Right. But uh, all those missions I ran, that was the only mission I ever failed on. At this point, when you took off, Covey told you how many enemy trucks and the armored vehicles were coming towards you, onloading troops. And so enemy, enemy, they were able to have a head count, which is unusual. And so in your case, there's about 250, 350 enemy yeah. troops, as well as the ones coming out of the jungle towards your team. Yeah, I don't know how many came were coming up the hill behind us. But uh, at that one time, the uh, they, the guys overhead told me that they, they estimated around 350 enemy uh, coming up the hill after us. And uh, I guess the only way, they, they, they just count the legs and divide by two. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, here's the key part of this story that leads to another unique aspect of your story in Vietnam was that, um, you know, it's uh, when I do my fourth book, it's going to be Saw Chronicles Volume 2. This will be one of the first stories. And the reason why it's going to be one of the first stories is because of you, your team, and then eventually what your efforts were in regards to this mission. Because one of the things that you told me in our interview working for the book was that this was the only mission you did not complete. And yeah. it set heavy on your heart, that whole mission. And, and also, you know, we forgot some of the details. That helicopter, the ends of the two props on that Yui, yeah, were were broken off, and they how, how the pilot was even able to get back to base. Uh, he wobbled back to base. I mean, you can feel the vibration. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh yeah, you can and feel the vibration. You're on the ladder. Or did you climb up? No, I it? climbed inside at that yeah. time because I kept climbing. He was flying away. I was climbing up the ladder to get inside. But the um, he lost about two feet on each rotor, and he hit a tree. That's what the big bang was. It wasn't an RPG. Uh, he hit a tree oh. and knocked the tips of the rotors off. But when we got back to Doc Toe, the, the chopper had a few bullet holes in it. I had seven or I was I would say probably between seven and ten holes or something like that yeah. in there. So, but the, the gunners did a good job, and so did the Cobra gunships. And um, but I can get to it later when we go back up. I couldn't figure what what took the enemy so long getting up that hill, especially when I they had that like a I thought it was a truck park. You yeah. Know, yeah. Because you know there's truck parks all over the place over there. Um, so, but uh, yeah, so. So at some point, you get back to base, either your base or the launch site, and you come into contact with the Air Force men that were in Cobra 83. Yes. And I think that uh, one of the things you said, that this was the hardest things you ever had to do. You had to tell the guys from Cobra 83, which was the Phantom Jet that saw the other jet crash. So they were wingmen. Right. Or whatever the official term for the Air Force would be. And uh, they couldn't, you had to tell them that you could not get to their buddies. Yeah, I could not get down there to get to those guys. When, when we lifted off, I could look back and I could see the jet laying there on its side. But the, uh, there was no way. And when I went back in 2017 or 20, even in 2002 when I went back, um, there was no way I could have got down that hill and up to the other side of the hill in time. It was, the, the hill was really, really steep. I mean, it was, it was like that. It was really, really sure. steep. So there's. You know, and my guess is the enemy was going up towards the jet as well. So we we got into a heavy fight. So the only thing I could do is to get my team out of there. Yeah. You know, to save them. That's all I could do. So. Um, but that really hung heavy on your heart. Yeah. And so if we could, um, to 
we'll we'll come back and talk about your third career in the U.S. military a little bit later. But to continue on this plot line about this day and this mission and your unique niche in history. Um, of going back. Going back. And you go through medical school. You become a, a doctor, a radiologist. And at some point, how many years later, take it from there, what you oh. began to do on your own time regarding well, to this mission? Well, I mean, there's other missions too, but, but of course, this, but this, this one is the here, one. Yeah, this one here, what I did is when I was when I was a radiologist, I was making pretty good money. So everybody goes, "Wow, you spent thirty-five or thirty-six thousand dollars on this," you know. On what? On on, I bought a lot of cameras and equipment, and then I what happened? Okay, you, what uh, happened was I. I gotta back your tape back up. Cause what you're talking about here is at some point you're a doctor, you're a radiologist, and for over the years, over twenty years, this thing hung heavy on your heart yeah you knew the u.s government attempted to go in they made several at least two attempts each time to go in for recovery they got shot out by bandits yeah. they were not able to get to the third hill where the f4 came to final rest the same hill that you stood on the second hill mm-hmm. 300 meters away you couldn't get there your team could and you had a painful choice survive or die trying to find men who may well be dead Right. So you did the right decision. You come back. Now you say, I'm going to go back. You take 35000 or 36000 of your own. You buy cameras and equipment to go back to Cambodia on your own volition to complete that mission. So as you're, you land in Cambodia or Thailand, just take us quickly to where you wind up with your team that you wound up walking over 100 miles from the campsite to get to hill the third hill okay so how that all started is is uh i ran into harlow short harlow was a medic on uh, when i was on the a-team and he lived in thailand but he happened to be in washington at the time uh-huh and so i got a talking to him and i told him i said you know i've always wanted to go back there and check out that jet and see if i can find some remains and he goes well let's go do it like that and so he came down <laughs> to my house he came down to my house yeah. and um and so uh, I gave him like 16000 I told him, said, hey, go on over there. And he said, I'll go over and set everything up for you. So he goes over to, Cam- uh, to Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And he gets all this stuff together and, um, you know, how to get up there and get, got maps and all kinds of stuff for me. So what I did is I got the time off and then I took off and I met him over there in Phnom Penh. From there, we met with the, the joint recovery teams that they had back then before right. DPA. And uh, they said they didn't have enough information to go in there. But I met with the guys and talked with them there in, Ca- in Phnom Penh. And uh, so one of the guys, you know, they decided they weren't going to go in. So one of the guys was a former SF guy, Special Forces guy. And he came up to me and he goes, look, he said, if you want to go up there, just go. I go, really? He says, how? He goes, just fly out the band lung and put it together and go. I said, okay. So what I did is um, <laughs> I, m- we got a flight and we flew up to Ban Lung. Back then, they had a little airstrip there. They still have the airstrip, but nobody's flying in and out now. So explain again where Ban Lung is. Ban Lung is right south of the tribe border. It's about, mm, about 45, 60, about about 60, 60, 70 miles, I guess. So when we say tribe border is Cambodia, Laos is on the north, and to the east is Vietnam. Right. Which was in 1970, one of the deadliest target areas that... CCC yeah. SOG recon men were running missions. Yeah, especially up by the Asha on the Laos side there. Well, that's rough. further north. So, but the uh, so anyway, the uh, we go ahead and 
we get together and we fly up there. And so I went over to one of the hotels and I'm talking to the guy at the hotel. and says, you know, I want to go up in the Radican Kerry province there and I want to take some pictures of wildlife and stuff. And uh, he says, I need somebody. And he goes, he said, I'll see what I can do. I know some people. So he went ahead and got me introduced with a guy. Well, I won't mention names because I don't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, he went ahead and... and I talked to him and everything, and he's, I said, I need like maybe about six guys. I says, you know, yourself and five others. And, and we're talking goes, to a Cambodian now. A Cambodian. Yes. And he's a, he's a Cambodian ranger for the Radican Carry Province. Not an ordinary Cambodian. Right, at, at, at the Radican Carry Province, because it's a, it's, a, it's a game reserve. Right. So uh, anyway, so we, we got to talking with him, and, and I, I showed him this map. I went and got these maps, and I, one night I just taped them all together. And I had like a hundred miles on this map, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I went ahead and uh, I told him. I said, "Look, I says the real reason I want to go is I want to go see this, uh, to go to a jet crash from Vietnam War." And he and he, he says, "Where?" And I showed him roughly where. And he goes, "I know the jet." He goes, "I know the crash." Really? Site. Yeah, he knew the crash site. Oh, I forgot that part. Yeah, he knew where the crash site was. Well, he was a ranger up there, and they they were chasing a lot of Vietnamese away for that going over there. Because they'd come over the border and, and scarf up all the metal and take it back to Vietnam and make trinkets out of it or something. Right, right. So, um, so anyway, we put it together and we started taking off. And we uh, we took heck, we went by elephant for a while. We went by trucks, then elephant, and then elephants. By, yeah, and then by boat. <laughs> oh yeah, I got a lot of movies on. I took a lot of f- footage riding these yeah, elephants. How many cameras there. did you take with you? Three cameras. Well, yeah. I took four. Three three VX one thousands and uh, one Sony night night shot. Okay. Yeah. So you record it and document it. This oh, and, as a, you and, go a, and, a, and a still camera too. I took a Nikon F five. <laughs> <laughs> so elephants, everything. How long did it take you to go a hundred miles up to the crash site? It took us uh, ten days. Wow. Okay, ten. so you arrive at the crash site or near the crash site. You walk in, run in, fly elephant in. How did you get into the second hill, or where where did you wind up when you got to well, that site? We, we we walked up and we went up the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we took a river as far as we could. Then we walked up this road and the road was a Hoachman Trail that went right where the bridge was. And wow. the bridge was gone, yeah. but you can see where the bridge was. And so right on the other side, you can find, I found all kinds of like flechettes and cones from the from the rockets and everything from when the Cobra gunships were fighting those guys when they all the trucks were there. Right, and they had the CBU left CBU, over from yeah, all uh, the stuff was the there. when they made gun runs protecting your team. Yeah. They, all that stuff was a lot of it was laying around wow. there so so what we did is we walked up the first hill went around went up to the second hill and the third hill we spent three days and just hunted all over the place and i was hoping to find like a helmet or something or find something but couldn't find anything all i, I took a metal detector which was a joke because it was just like beep 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 beep, beep all over the place because there's so many bullets. so many bullets all over the place you had flechettes all over the place and so also, by going up the third hill, you also realized that your decision back in May 1970 was the right decision because then you saw just how steep the hill was, right. how much time it would have taken. You never would have made it to the top with the weather closing in and with the enemy closing in. That further, at least you could have your mind at rest a little bit on that point. And then what, did it t- what was it like? How long did it take you to get to the actual crash site? And when you get there, of course, the um, it had been scavenged a lot by the Vietnamese. But take it from there. How yeah, long? Some of the oh, it it to get up to the 
well, I went up to the very first hill where we went in, and uh, you, know, you can see the craters where the bombs were short and stuff, right? Or long and stuff. You can see that you can see where the craters were, and and it was all grown over. And then I got to the top, walked on down. Everything was gone. The bunkers were still there. The hooches and everything that were there were all gone. Um, but um, we got up to the second hill. Um, I couldn't. I didn't find the bomb that was there for for. But the bomb is still there. It right. is still. It's still the there. Five hundred pounder. Yeah, it's still there. So, but I I didn't find that. So, but the, it was about the second or third day we get up to the third hill, and we get up there and we found like some of the landing gears and some of the other things, and that's right where the jet was actually laid to rest. Right. Yeah, because there was some of the metal that it was either too heavy or they didn't want to take it. I didn't find any engines, but when I went back with DPA, we found both engines. So. Um, <clears throat> when you're there, did you bring back any souvenirs for the family? Was um, that, did you no, do not, that then, or when you went back on your next trip with DPA? No, when I went uh, up there with, in 2002 on my own dime, um, I picked up a couple of pieces of the wing, the honeycomb, and stuff like that, and some soil. I picked big pieces of the jet, and I brought put it in a box, and I brought it back, and I gave I gave uh, a piece to the uh, you know uh, Captain Eric Hoover's family. Because yeah. he had he had uh, a bunch of sisters. So at this point, we haven't named the two pilots. So right, it's Eric Huberth and um, uh, Alan Trent. Right. So they were the two men that you were searching for, and then also, at some point, you're on a third hill and armed bandits. Oh no, that was that, that was back at the camp. Well, anyway, they stopped you from doing your mission. Wherever that happened, where did they? Where was your confrontation that suddenly? ended your private mission to find those two Air Force pilots? Well, we were down at the camp and we were getting ready to have dinner because we lived off the land and we had all these fish butterflied on a piece of wood and, and we were eating that stuff and rice and stuff. And But then all of a sudden these guys came out of the bushes with AKs and... Um, Wearing uniforms. Uh, yeah, they, some of the, they were, you know, what they were is some of them were just, you know, civilians and uh, but a few of them were wearing uniforms. They were like police and um, an army because the Cambodian government doesn't pay them. Right. They're supposed to be getting paid. and They're not getting paid. So they become you know, bandits, kind of like in the Khmer Rouge kind of thing. So um, so anyway, what they what they did is they threatened us and told us, we don't want you here. We're going to, you know, they were, they were going to probably shoot us and steal our stuff. But uh, what happened was one of the guys I hired was a son of the province chief. Which you didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the but time. But God was smiling on your team yeah. that day. Exactly. So that guy didn't want any trouble. So yeah. he just said, you know, he just really pissed and screaming in Cambodian, which I don't understand. But, you know, <laughs> just screaming at me and stuff, you know, and with, with guns on me and stuff. And uh, so finally they, uh, they went ahead and uh, he said, you better not be here tomorrow, something like that. So we were going to leave the following day anyway. So your team member is able to talk down the armed bandits who are right. pointing their guns at you who probably might well have killed you all right there. Well, see, the one guy that was an officer, I, I can only assume he was a police officer. I can't tell because they're wearing khakis. Right. So not all of them, but uh, I've got pictures of them too. <laughs> yeah, I've got pictures of them. But that's from 2002. They've aged a lot since then. Yeah, well, some of them looked exactly the same. When I went back in, you know, in uh, 2017, right. I ran into three of the guys. So anyways, from this mission here, you finally go back. And I, Just a little sidebar, you live off the land each day yeah. as you move north. You didn't yeah. have rations on your backs. No. So you fished, and then whatever Frogs. else you could eat, you cooked that at night. 
and that was one of your sounds like another uh, aspect of your SF uh, power rescue training that yeah. uh, came in quite handy as you went over a hundred miles to get to that site. Well, yeah, when we were walking, I mean, I get up in the morning and uh, I can smell, mm, that smells good. What is that? And I go over, <laughs> I look in the pot and it's like 20 frogs in there, these little frogs. And he's just meshing m- them up and yeah. stirring them up. It tasted good, but you know, they eat everything. Sure. They, they eat the bones, the skin, the eyes, they eat everything, you know. Guts, oh, is that right? Uh, oh yeah. They eat everything. Oh. So, <laughs> but you know, they had rice. Right. So I would just take the broth and pour it over my rice, you know, a little piece of meat. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to eat eyeballs and guts. <laughs> yeah. So let me uh, fast forward the tape. You're able to go back. You successfully returned to your successful uh, career as a radiologist on the East Coast. And then at some point, you yeah, made Coast. contact with uh, DPAA or whatever yeah. their version of the DPA was in 2017 or 2016? Well, in 2002, what happened is when I left there, yeah. I went, uh, I, I had a big party for all the guys. I threw a big old party for them. And um, so then from there, uh, I took off and went up to Laos. And I wanted to go up the Ho Chi Minh Trail on Laos. And uh, went up to um, Atapu. Atapu, they had, there was still SAM missiles laying around and stuff like that there, you know. Right. Um, so anyway, we up the road up to up into Laos up there, and um, and it was it was kind of a, a nice adventure. It was kind of peaceful and stuff. Um, <laughs> a little bit more peaceful than it was back in 1968. Right. Yeah. And so when I was in Atapu, I think it was I think it was Atapu is where I bumped into DPA and not you know the J uh, Joint J-Pack, Recovery Teams. Right. Yeah. When I, I bumped into them, and uh, I told them I said um, I said I went to the crash site. And this, this one guy in charge looks at me and he goes, how'd you get there? I said, I walked. <laughs> and he goes, you what? <laughs> he goes, you, you walked. Uh, so, and I says, yeah. I says, um, I'll, I'll, head, I'll send you guys a bunch of pictures. So what I did is uh, I had a contact at the time back then. He's retired now. And we're friends now on Facebook too, by the way. The, the guy that worked for the joint recovery team. He's the one that told me actually that it was in Cambodia because all these years I thought it was in Laos. I didn't know it was in Cambodia. When you do a bright light mission, you don't know where it is. Right. You just, you just go. Get the, yeah. get the six by six map just to where you're going. Yeah. In fact, we didn't even get a six by six. They just took us in. We didn't even have a map. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That's just what bright lights are for. Exactly. So um, but anyway, so I told him and I sent all those pictures to him and stuff. And, and in fact, the guy at, uh, I can't remember his name. But anyway, he went, he sent me all the information. He sent me packets of everything, what they found on when they went back in on the third time. Uh-huh. And they did a went around the area, cleaned it off, and they, they looked around for like, oh, I think they, they said they went for a couple hundred meters around the crash site. And this is the third mission by the U.S. government. Right. And this is before or after you did your mission? Before. Before. So there's three behind. You're talking. You're sharing with them. So what leads to you eventually going back to Cambodia with DPAA in 216 or 217? 2017? Yes, sir. Um, well, they, they contacted me. And said, you know, we're going back into that crash site. Would you like to go? And I said, of course I would. I'd love to go. So uh, I, they flew me out to Hawaii. And I, I trained with the guys for a little bit. And then we just loaded all the equipment up and everything. And I got to meet the team, which is, by the way, they're awesome guys. Uh, DPA works really, really hard. 
I mean, those guys, unbelievable. Like if you're like you're going to Disneyland for the first day and like you're really all pi- pumped up for right. that, they're like that all the way to the very last day. Six no weeks, kidding. six weeks. The, it could be even longer. The teams know. that are on the ground are doing the uh, actual work. They're just outstanding. They they're dedicated. Unbelievably work. Yeah, unbelievable. So work. what kind of training did they give you? Back at Hawaii uh, before ropes, you took off. Ropes. Ropes, which I was a mountain climber, so yeah. I, you know, ropes, you know. You showed them how to repel? Yeah. <laughs> From a show helicopter? The, yeah, show them how to do all that stuff, you know, <laughs> being a mountain climber. But um, rock climbing and everything. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, we, um, we we trained and everything there, and uh, they had us do, um, I'll talk about uh, health over there, you know, right. and make sure you got all your shots and everything and all that kind of stuff. And so we flew back over there and we went to, we flew up, we drove to Ban Lung this time because the airport was shut down. So we drove from Phnom Penh to Ban Lung. Um, and the government over there did that so the people would spend money along the road for the villagers so the right. people would have money. So anyway, so from there, um, uh, Cambodian helicopters uh, or a helicopter Cambodian, I can't remember, but it's a group out of uh, Anger Wat up in uh, their, uh, the pilots are from Australia. And uh, they're they're wonderful. They're just wonderful pilots. A great, great bunch of people. And uh, but they flew us in one of their choppers. They loaded all the stuff and they kept flying it back to Ban Lung. I mean, up to the crash site from Ban Lung. They just kept loading up the helicopter. Just kept how, going. How long of a trip is that, or how many miles? By helicopter, it was like about uh, 45, 50 minutes. Oh, that long? Yeah. Wow. Okay. The reason it took me 100 miles is because uh, I had to go around mountains, up right. rivers, over mountains, and everything else to get sure. there. Sure. So and it takes it's a lot easier longer. flying over. Oh yeah, much easier, <laughs> much much easier. So so eventually you land on the site. The, yeah. The uh, DPAA team is there, and in the beginning, weren't they working on Hill Two? They hadn't gotten to Hill Three yet. You were able to give them some redirection. Uh, no, they went right right to uh, right where the jet was. They wanted to just search right where the jet was. So they went right onto the Hill Three. Hill Three. Okay. Yeah. So what we did is. Um, the hill was kind of like a finger it goes across. And so we landed here and our camp was set up here. Right behind the camp was one of the engines from the jet. So then they we walked down the hill and over and then the hill came up to the top where the jet was up here. Right. And they start at the bottom of the hill and they worked their way up to the top. Wow. And uh, I mean, amazing work the way they have it all laid out. It's just like an archaeologist. You know, you go sure. in there, you, t- you mark it off and you, you know, they... They go down uh, about 12 to 15 inches, and they take everything out. And tell leaves. us why they have to go down 12 to 15 inches. Oh, because, because of all these years. All these yeah. years, everything. The jungle grows. The jungle yeah, floor it grows. grows. Yeah, and, and even through the roots, you get you peel out of roots out of a tree. Mm-hmm. You got to break those roots up because there could be a tooth or something inside those roots. Wow. From, from 30 years of growing. And you weren't just sitting around taking pictures. No, no, I helped. You got involved. Yeah. And you were working every day side by side with DPAA at that site. Yeah. I worked my butt off with them. You did. Lost 35 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) I should go back. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, you were there. They asked you to extend a couple extra weeks to stay with them. Yeah. I was supposed to be there only two weeks, and they asked me to stay for the whole six weeks. Right. So you wrapped up the mission, you came back. Oh, and then one of the key things here, um, they were not able to get any remains um, from that effort. Or well, what did they find? Well, I, I, I can't go into too much because I don't know what right, they... nothing you revealed that we yeah, can't Yeah, because I don't know but, what... Because they're, they're, I think they're over there right now getting ready to come back. 
Um, but uh, anyway, they uh, when I was there, I found I found a couple of bullets from the thirty-eight pistol that the pilots were carrying. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I found some of the bullets, and um, I mean, but not fire. You saw you saw the whole bullet itself. Yeah, the whole bullet itself. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, but. Um, other than that, we found, you know, parts of their vest. We found other stuff like that. Right. Uh, I did hear, though, uh, when they went back in 2019, they found a dog tag, Alan Trent's dog tag. So I don't know where it's going from there. Well, and then wasn't there a time when they said, we go back again, we'll call you. Yes. And then you'll go back with us. Yeah. At S- at SO, at that SOAR, last SOAR, uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah, when I went. And so, just for our listening audience, SOAR is the Special Operations Association Reunion. Right. And through the SOA, there's been an ongoing relationship with DPAA and its predecessors for over 20 years, where they encourage our members to talk to them about any known POW MIA cases. Right. Like in your case, you're able to give them specific information from your time on the ground, which helped them to pinpoint their search right. efforts. And this is the kind of thing, the rapport back and forth between DPAA and the SOA over the years. And it's been helpful, um, part of that ongoing relationship. So you're there in the last reunion that was held because 2020, the China virus knocked us out of the box. There was no reunion. But that right. year, you were told at SOAR by DPAA officials what? Uh, they told me that I definitely would be going. And so I called up and I figured, you know, it's time's getting on there. So I called up Hawaii and talked to them. And they go, oh, no, the team's on its way. I'm going, I thought you were going to let me go with them. And he just said, well, it didn't work out, you know, something like that. And so yeah. they kind of screwed me over there. They did. But, so yeah. I, it's, it's, here's a point where, it's one of the dis- disappointing aspects of DPAA. The people on the ground doing the day hard work on the ground are outstanding troops. No question about that. But somewhere in mid-management, there's problems with DPAA. There's a promise made to you who helped them, who went back on your own dime, above, far above and beyond the call of duty. And they say, oh, we'll call you the next time we go back. And they didn't. Right. That's pathetic. Yeah, but Anna, we don't want to focus on the negative too much, but God bless you for what you've done on that. So any more little quick sidebars on that? Like you told me previously that you, the, the things you brought back, you were able to reach um, out to the two families of the Air Force pilots. Yeah, well, at first I heard from uh, the J, JPAC guys that, they, they did, that the Alan Trent's family didn't want to know anything about it one right. way or the other. And so then I heard from Eric Huther's family, the uh, Hubert, you know, the, the sisters, that they were in touch with Alan Trent's sister, I think it was. And um, they so wanted to be another sister then. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, they wanted to know it. So I've still got a piece of the jet. I want to go ahead and get to that family. Wow. But you gave them something from the site. Yes. I gave him a piece of the jet, Cobra 84. Gosh. Just I, amazing. Yeah. What a great job. And you brought it all back from the jungle over all that terrain. And that's the stuff you brought back on foot. It wasn't the stuff well, you, you know, brought back with DPAA on, the, on their helicopters from Cambodia. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> when I when I shipped everything to the States, yeah. including a jar of soil, uh, I put it all in, in one box and mailed it back to the States. When I, I was wondering, where is everything? Because I had a bunch of trinkets and stuff I picked up over there, you know. Sure. And when I got it back, it came to me in two boxes. 
<laughs> so they went through everything. And the interesting thing was, is they left the soil and everything in there. They didn't take it out. Really? Yeah, because that's, a, that's a, I guess, a big illegal thing. You, you don't take soil from another country. Really? Yeah, that's what I heard. So. Okay. Well, we so, learned something today. Yeah, so <laughs> it's like you, you're taking their territory or something. I don't well, know. Well, okay, so that... So this wraps it up with DPAA screwing you over by not being an agency with integrity enough at the mid-management or upper management to say yes. come back. So now you're home. Let's just go back a little bit because I wanted to follow that story through. Let's come back. After your special forces career, you went back. You were training at Long Ton. And um, at some point after that mission, the first sergeant at CCC came into you and said, hey, there's an opening. Do you want to teach at Longton? And Longton well, at that time was the one zero school for future SOG yeah, recon. Future team. But I had some other missions there too. Yeah, in your spare time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you want me to touch on some well, of those particularly, other? Well, particularly the one where you where had the, the, the mission was go get the tank. <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking. Yeah, this is no one of those. I'm walking across the compound. You know, I'm walking across. Didn't the you compound. learn you shouldn't walk across the compound? Well, you I should do I an volunteer E&E. for everything. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I have never ever turned down a mission. Or, I don't care what the mission was. I went. Yeah. You know. So. So on this the, occasion, they you're walking across the compound, uh, diddy bopping. Right. And, and so the first sergeant comes up and he goes, um, "Your favorite first sergeant." Yeah. He goes, um, <laughs> "Hey Jones," he says, um, "Team's down, right?" I says, "Yeah." I said after that last mission, I went ahead and gave him. Gave him a week off, and because uh, I had a I had a big team, yeah. But I split him in half. I had one guy that spoke Vietnamese in Montagnard, so I spoke Vietnamese, so I could talk to him, and he would right. translate everything. And the other guy spoke. Uh, totally was one of the guys. He he was he got killed, but totally he he spoke he spoke uh, English beautifully. Really? Yeah. He he got killed in one of those internment camps and whatever. He tried to escape and escaped twice, and they after killed the him. war. Yeah, and they killed him on the third attempt. Oh. So I found out from one of the guys who was, was one of the medics at our dispensary there. Mm-hmm. And he was working for the NVA, uh, North Vietnamese, after the war. Right. And he uh, spoke English. And so what happened is when I was going up to Laos, I went to um, one of the guys because they're up there cutting trees down right. for the wood. And I asked him, I said, I'd like to have somebody take me up to Ho Chi Minh Trail. He says, can I hire one of your guys? So... And I gave him a couple hundred, so I'll give you 400 bucks. I gave him 200 bucks, and he put a guy with me, and the guy spoke English. And then later, uh, a couple of days later, he comes over to me, and he goes, he goes, by chance, were you at Contum? And I go, yeah. He goes, I, I worked in the medical office. I was at, but please, no. Yeah, he says, don't tell anybody. He says, don't say anything to anybody, please. And so I never said anything. But that guy actually was, he went up there, and he, he told me everything that was going on. <laughs> so it was really kind of cool. So, but uh, anyway, um, going back. So I'm I'm walking across the compound. Yeah. And and he goes, um, he goes. Well, you know, Jim. He says, um, you know, uh, Sergeant Hill lost a man on his last mission, and he goes, uh, he needs a man. He's got a mission coming up. And I says, uh, you want to run with him? I go, yeah, I'll run with him. So I ran over and I said, um, are you Sergeant Hill? And he goes, yeah. And he says, I I hear you got a mission coming up. And he goes, yeah. I says, I'll run with you. And he goes. Really? I says, yeah. So now he's got two one zeros on one team, which is right. a, lot of, a lot of background there. So. Sure. So I went ahead and I ran with him. And I asked him, I says, hey, um, what's the mission? He goes, oh, he wants to go knock out a tank. 
I go, what? <laughs> what? Knock out a friggin' tank. Are you serious? A Russian th- tank in yeah. Laos. Yeah, there's going to be thousands <laughs> of people around that tank. They're not going to They're not gonna let it sit there by itself. It's not right. sitting at a parking lot, you yeah. know? <laughs> so, so anyway, we go. We, uh, he says, well, we're leaving in a couple of days. If you want, you can go do an aerial recon tomorrow. So I went ahead and did a fly over and did an aerial recon. And I'm looking at it and checking out. It's all slash and burn. Now, slash and burn, for those who don't know what that is, that's their... It looks like a jigsaw. It looks like, not a jigsaw, but a, like tic-tac-toe. It's an agricultural process. Yeah, where it's the all clear. Would, farmer land until it became so used up yeah. that they had to go to new land. They would, they would, they would slash and burn it, cut down all the trees, drain the yeah. soil. And then they burn it after, after, they, after they wasted the soil or took out all the nutrients. Yeah, and but there's little rows of trees in between them. Yes. Yeah, and 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 you can't walk through those things. I mean, there's going to be booby traps. They're going well, they're probably no booby traps in their property, but but they're, they're going to have you know ambushes and everything set up if they think they see your choppers coming in. Yeah. So so anyway, we go ahead and I pick out a couple of spots, and he agreed with me. There's a couple of spots he picked out, and so we're flying in. We're going in. Coming in on the first chopper, all of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. And you can hear bullets hitting the chopper. I mean, it's crazy. The freaking chopper's starting to look like Swiss cheese. None of us got hit. So he Whoa. pulls up really fast and goes over and tries to put us in our secondary. We're coming down our secondary. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> bullets are flying all over the place. Right. Still, none of us got hit. You know, but you can hear it hitting those choppers, those bullets, you know. So anyway, we go over and he, he gets up between the pilots. He goes, Hey, put us down over there. So we go over there, and we go out, and we're getting closer to the ground. All of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> And I hear, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. And so I'm reaching across, and I'm holding on to his arm. Hill. To keep, yeah, to keep him from falling out of the helicopter because of the centrifugal force when they pull up real quick. Right. So, but that, that was the end of that mission. And where was he hit? He was hitting the foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had one foot on the strut and the other foot hanging out there like he was getting ready to jump off the chopper. Yeah. And he got hit right in that foot. Knocked the dog poo out of him. Oh, my God. Yeah, because they had to go for that plate, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Went through the plate in his jungle boot. Yeah. So, but that, that was the end of that mission. Thank goodness. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> we were asking for trouble if we got on the ground. So, is there one one more mission there that comes to mind or from SOG days? Or then, we, even in Longton, you were then training future one zeros and future SOG members. So, yeah, this well, is 1970. Well, I had a couple of incidents. I remember one time we were, uh, I was with uh, Joe Vandiver. And, we're, and you're where now? And uh, I think that was in Laos. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're, we're over there and we're walking around and um, we got trackers coming after us because it was raining and muddy and everything and you could see the tracks. We, we could see them because we went back and we circled around, crossed over ourselves. Right. And we could see the tracks behind you us. did one of those hookbacks? Yeah, coming back around. And... Um, so we went and found a place to rest overnight and we get down underneath we found a fallen trees we climbed up underneath it and we're laying there and it's raining and everything and i remember it was so friggin pitch black and we can hear people coming walking through you know their right uniform everything tinkling any dogs no dogs but they came through we had dogs when i was on danster when i went with danster that time right yeah they had dogs there um but the uh i remember we can hear them and all of a sudden we didn't hear them again and then I'm sitting there going, I'm looking at them and they're looking at me and we can't see each other. I mean, I could have sworn it's like from me to you. No kidding. Oh, man. I, and then we had no idea. We could, all we could do is we got up as soon as it got a little bit of light. Right. We got up and we snuck out of there and got out. 
and we had, didn't have any problems. We walked out. And um, but later that day, we had a bunch of monkeys, you know, or, uh, apes running around the woods. So we're wondering if maybe it was apes on the ground instead of in the trees. We don't know. So because we did, we couldn't see them, right? We yeah, could only hear them walking. So then and then uh, <laughs> later that day, we we're walking down. We stopped. I remember we stopped to take a break, and all of a sudden, enemies started walking right by us. Really? Yeah. So from, where's the team on a break? You're off the trail? We, we didn't even know there was a trail there. We didn't get to it yet. Oh, we, so you had been marching. You didn't realize yeah. it. And then yeah. you're on a break. And then. Yeah. And these guys walked right. Back. I'm laying on the ground trying to get as low as I can. I thought they were going to hear my heart beating. Because you know how you when your heart's beating, you're going like boom, 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 boom. Sure. Your body's moving. I thought the bushes were going to be moving. And all of a sudden, I look out the corner of my eye and I see their legs from me to you just walking by. And, and you not, didn't even realize you were that close to a trail. Yeah, I had no idea. And the idea. reason why, because you're in triple canopy in layoffs, yeah, and that, you move through the triple canopy for a long period of time. You take a break. Lo and behold, you take your break next to a trail, close enough where the enemy yeah. walk past two to three feet away from you. They don't see you. You're in the jungle, but you see them. But there's a lot of those guys, and you still have just a little recon team. Yeah, I, not really I, I, the first thing I was thinking is an enemy at that point. Well, the first thing I was <laughs> thinking was let's grab one of these guys as a POW. Prison. Yeah, that's the first thing I was thinking. But there's a lot of them. Yeah, but Joe Vandiver goes, uh, we don't know who's behind them. You know, it could be a lead element. You know, indeed. So we just let it go. But uh, <laughs> we had one guy stand up, we wanted to shoot him. We grabbed him down. We fired him at the end. Afterwards. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we fired him. His name was Nut, and we called him a nut. But he would just get up and start shooting anybody. He didn't care. I mean, he was, yeah, he was scary. You didn't want him on your team. No, no. So, <laughs> so we finally got rid of him. Just another day in uh, Sog. But yeah, I, you know, I had I had a few missions, a lot of little things like that pop up and stuff. Road watchers, you go up on the road and you watch, count the trucks go by, you try right. to see what's in them. If it's light enough, you try to see if there's. Uh, if it's people, if you know enemy, if it's food, if it's weapons, stuff sure. like that, and you count them, then you move back up again. And um, I remember one time we moved back up again, and we can heard heard voices on the road. All of a sudden, they started shooting each other. They no must, kidding. Yeah, they thought that they were shooting us. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know they probably thought each one was the enemy, and yeah. they were shooting at each other. So I've had where fast movers come down. And they, they, you hear them dropping bombs on the Hoachman Trail, and all of a sudden you hear all these secondary explosions where they hit a bomb storage or something. Sure, caches. Yeah. Caches, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, hear, you come across a lot of little stuff like bright light missions. I remember one time we were on a bright, we were off the side on a bright light mission, and we're frigging bouncing on the ground. The only thing between us and that Hoachman Trail and the, and the arc light was that, uh, was, was a, a hill to keep from any shrapnel. So, wait, moving. let's play the tape back a little bit. The reason why you're bouncing off the ground is you're. Danger close to an arc like B fifty two strike. Right, it's three jets. Whoa. It's three jets flying over, and what do they drop? A hundred or three hundred bombs each? Uh, they drop a lot, and yeah. they're at three thirty thousand feet, so you can't hear the jet. Yeah, and you don't hear anything until the first bomb explodes. Well, and you then can, we were close enough; we can hear the going. But you know what you hear is you hear the carrier. No, I don't know. I've never had that experience, Jim. But thank oh, you. Oh, yes, really? please tell us well, what that's have, like. They, they have a cart. You know, they got the bombs and they've got this tray, yeah, and they okay. got bombs on it and yeah. stuff. When the tray drops, you can hear the tray. It, you can hear the tray coming down. Okay. Yeah, so that's what you hear. <laughs> and that happens three times a night. But, I mean, it was like flash bulbs going off. It was so bright. I yeah, mean, right I can't in front of imagine. your face. It was, yeah, it was unbelievable. 
So did they know you were there? No. Oh, yeah, the the uh, Air Force so, pilots knew where we were. Okay, so yeah, yeah, danger they, close, but everything's copacetic. Yeah, everything's okay. <laughs> Whoa. 108. 108? 108 per plane. Yeah, so that's 300, that's uh, 900 bombs a night, roughly. Oh, my God. Uh, they so drop on that. at some point, this, the your favorite first sergeant comes into you in May of, of uh, 1970. He goes, Jim, do you like to teach? Oh, I love teaching. But yeah, he goes, uh, you know, he says, you've had a couple of rough missions. He says, would you like to go down and teach for a while, take a break? And I go, sure. So I went on down the long time and I taught infill, exfil, you know, you know, strings, repelling, ladders, uh, parachuting, that kind of stuff. And then I did um, uh, prisoner snatches, taking, you know, prisoners. Right. Um, when I was on the A-team, I took a few prisoners, so... And this um, is on A team before you go to CNC. Yeah, before I went to CNC, A five hundred two. Yeah, I took. I think I took a total of around fifteen prisoners when yeah, I was there. Let me just play that tape back. My whole career, I never got one out alive. Well, and you yeah. with the A team, but it's yeah. okay. It's still pretty impressive. So you can just talk about how you were able to capture that many Viet Cong or NVA who became your POWs, and take it from there, sir. Well, when. <laughs> When when I was on the when I was on the A team, you know, I had I had 133 Vietnamese with me. They're CIDG, Civilian Irregular Defense Groups. It, uh, it was um, uh, 502. A A554, I think it was uh, the, the they CID, were attacked. They CIDG. They were 502, right? Yeah, the CIDG yeah. camp. That that was the the, the CIG number 554. Um, so anyway, we got those guys, and so you're going out with a couple of platoons of people. And you can set up ambushes, and you see these people coming. You can grab them and stuff. One of them I picked up on. Um, he was. Uh, it was kind of a sad story, and I almost got in a fight with the doctors over it. But um, it was an ambush, and a bunch of them got killed and stuff. But one guy was alive. He had a he got shot in the femur, broke a femur with a with an around, and so we brought him back. And uh, I mean, I was getting ready to give them some morphine because you got to be careful giving them morphine. You know, the little people because they can they can die from it. Right. So you give them the opposite side, yeah, and you just give them like a little half of that little squeezy thing. Surrat. Yeah, surrat. So squeezy thing. (laughs) (laughs) So 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 you give them that, and and so I I wrapped up and I I had my guys take them on down to the to uh, to play coup at the hospital there, and so he was only he was only fourteen years old. And it, you know, the enemy had young kids fighting. Yeah, sure. So at 14. So I go down there the next day, and the next thing I know, he's, his leg is gone. And I go, what happened to his leg? He said, oh, we had no choice. We had to take it off. I go, okay. So I went down a couple of weeks later and to see how he was doing. And I said, hey, where is he? Oh, he died. I go, what do you mean he died? He only got shot in the leg. And he, and then this doctor goes, you know how many Americans I see dying in here? And I said, you effing asshole. I said, you know how many more Americans are going to die because you just killed my intelligence? Like that, and I yeah. was getting, a, I was gonna get ready to punch him. He was gonna fight, fight me. I mean, we were getting rid of a fight. Yeah, you know. And so the nurses broke us up and said, "Wait, wait, stop! Just stop! Get get away from each other!" You know. Like so then I came back, and that just broke my heart. Fourteen-year-old kid. So get yeah. back to how you got POWs. Oh well, that one was on an ambush, and right. the other ones we set up, uh, we set up ambushes for him. Yeah, one that was really big. You got five to seven. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because there was a um, there was a hospital up there in the hills. We knew there was a hospital. A Viet Cong NVA hospital. Yeah, Viet Cong hospital. We knew there was there, and we didn't know where it was. Uh, So I wanted to go up there and find it. So I went up and set this uh, ambush up, and we took, oh heck, I don't know how many, how many people were there. 
But people walk through your ambush site. Yeah, they walk you through it. You ignited the ambush. Right. Killed then, a bunch, and yeah. some lived. They became yeah. your POWs? Yeah, the ones okay. that... One was a woman, and... Um, no, wait, no. Yes, one was a woman, and uh, and two other guys were, um, I guess, Viet Cong that were trained as nurses or something like that. The woman, I can't remember if she was a nurse or a doctor. I can't remember. But anyway, so we got them, and, and we turned them over to... To the A team, they interrogated, talked to him and stuff. Then they turn him over to the district chief, and the district chief says, "I'll let you go as long as you don't hit my village," that kind of thing. Right. That's the way it works. A little there. quid pro quo there. Yeah, that's just the way it went. And then when I was down at uh, B fifty three, long time you're going through the long training. time. Yeah, when you're I was a, teaching, you're a trainer there, a teacher. Yeah, when I was teaching him, uh, RT Mava came down from CCN, and they were going to the prisoner snatch school, so. They had a mission coming up, and I was supposed to be going home. This is one where I missed my flight going home. So, <laughs> so anyway, so they they're getting ready to go out on this mission, and uh, and I said, really going to go out there because the Australians came to us, and the Australians there was an ambush set up, and the Australians got caught in the ambush and they ran right into a minefield. Oh, and so thirty six of them got either killed or wounded, and so they asked if we can go in there and take a prisoner and find out where this mining place was where they were building these mines. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so uh, we set up the amb- we we're, we're up there. We had, we had two teams. One was from CCC, but another couple of guys took that team out, and they were up there at night. And you can hear them because when you want to take prisoners, one of the ways you take a prisoner is you let them know you're there, and have them come come to you. Right. And then you can wipe out what you want and keep the guys you want. Um, <laughs> that's one way of doing it. So these guys were up there, and it was Shepard. Uh, I can't remember Shepard's first name, but he was he was up there, and he took his siren with him. So we we're sitting there at the middle of the night, you know, and you're he's got this siren, no. yeah, trying to get people to come to him. <laughs> so so we're sitting there, we're we're over, rest overnight and stuff, you know, and you remember, you know that picture where I'm sitting out in the bush, I'm sitting on the ground, right? Yeah, that picture is from that from right the night before we took these prisoners. So anyway, we're we're up next morning and we hear ox carts coming up this road, this dirt trail, and so we get up and we set up an ambush real quick and we pull them over. Find out the ox carts got all these implements in it, trying to make for making mines. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, so um, you know, so they had wood they had over the top. All the materials, then they had stuff on top. Yeah, so you couldn't tell. They had a bunch of kids with them. Whoa! Yeah, to to throw it off. Sure, of course. And and again, it was a it was a woman like the mother of the kids kind of thing yeah. and a couple of other guys. So we took those three prisoners and then we, we told the kids, we destroyed everything that was in the ox cart, told them to take your oxen and go back home. And, but you know, an interesting little side point on this is the helicopters flying overhead. Uh, they came over and they wanted us to step back back and they were going to shoot everything up. And I told them, I said, you make, you shoot them up. I'm going to make you come down here and look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And so then a CNC ship flew overhead and, and he goes, hey, what's going on? And I told him and he told the choppers to get out of there because uh, they, wow. they were just little kids. Yeah. Yeah. So told them to go. And then we had a chopper come in and we took the prisoners back. And uh, I got I got vid- movies of them, too, at, from that at B-53. <laughs> I think I see a future movie coming here, some kind of documentary. Oh, so yeah. So you wrap up your tour of duty, your training there. Then at some point, you being... James Henry Shorten Jones the first, the one, the only. Uh, you get a little bored with life. You go, maybe I should be a PJ. Yeah, well, when I came back to the States, I was I joined the 12th Reserve Group. Right. With Jimmy Gaston and the team over there. And um, uh, we were 
they sent us all to scuba school, and so we were underwater operations. Sure. So, but there's not much you can do, you know. I'd love to be in a war underwater, go do stuff, you know. But um, we were doing ship-bottom searches. We were doing stuff for the Coast Guard and up in the Sacramento River for the Army ships, you know. And that was a bummer. And at that time, the 12th was based where? It was it was at um, Novato, California. Okay. Yeah, by, by San Francisco. Sure. Yeah, so... Um, but I remember one time doing a ship bottom search, and I'm down at the bottom trying to get a cable off a screw. Right. And I'm down, and I'm I'm in this silt, and the water's mud. It's of all it's like the Mississippi River, you know. And and I look up, and you can see light, right? And I'm looking on my face mask, and I see all these little worms on my face mask <laughs> from the silt, and there I know they're in the corner of my mouth, and I'm going, ah. Oh. <laughs> so you're you're moving forward. You're in the twelfth, and then the light goes on. I think. I think I'll become an Air Force pararescue man. Well, I didn't even know what PJs were. I had no right. clue what pararescue was. But we're up in Truckee, and we're teaching uh, night. It was in the wintertime, mm-hmm. and then snow and everything. We're teaching um, submachine guns and night vision devices. And so these PJs come up in this bus. And they come up and say, we're going to have mulligan stew for dinner. And they go, no, 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 no. He says, no, no, we're cooking dinner tonight. And they whip out filet mignon, lobster, all the stuff. And they got these big things set up. These all guys, Air Force. They, oh, yeah, man. They were setting it up. <laughs> no mulligan stew for them. Oh, man. So we took <laughs> off. You know, you know mulligan stew. You take all your sea rations and yeah, yeah. a little hot sauce and you're, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, so uh, I go on down to the Bar of America in Truckee, California with the, one of the guys, Bob, Bob Herman. And uh, Bob was a character. So, and I said, what do these guys do anyway? And he goes, uh, well, we jump all the time. We do plane crashes in the mountains, ships out in the ocean, you know, all kinds of rescue work. He says, yeah, we have a great time. We're, we've got something going every week. And I so, go, really? they mentioned their heritage of the PJs because during the Vietnam War, they were the Jolly Green Giants, which in every Super other Jolly's helicopter Jolly's, yeah. rescue mission failed. Then you called the Jolly Green Giants, whose motto was, that, that others, others may, may live. Exactly. And they died. I mean, October 5th with Lynn Black, yeah. they, they lost a helicopter and crew members supporting, trying to rescue one of our teams that was saved by another Jolly Green Giant. Yeah, Super Giant. So there's that great history of valor, uh, you know, which is a part of the Air Force that very little people know about. Yeah, it's a very small group. There's very few PJs Highly around. trained. Yeah, extremely highly trained. So very make it hard. to the point you want to join. So tell us a little bit yeah. about what got you in and how the training went. And then you had a couple unusual missions there. Uh, yeah, so what? when I when I went down to talk to Al Richmond, uh, he was in charge of the pararescue section for the 129th AARRS. It's Aerospace Rescue Recovery Service. So we go down there and... Uh, and he was a former SF guy. Yeah, he was a former reserve SF guy. Yeah. and uh, They're everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere, I tell you, everywhere. <laughs> so so anyway, so uh, he shows me this letter, and it says that pararescue needs more tactical training. And I'm going, geez, I'm so tired of teaching people how to kill each other, you know. So, yeah. So, and he goes, well, that's your ticket in. I go, well, if I have to. So, <laughs> so I, I go ahead, and he says, well, you're still going to have to go to school. So you still got to pass. So they, they gave me a test and I passed the test. You know, you got to swim like a thousand yards or something like that. And you got to do so many push-ups, pummy pull-ups. But I passed all that stuff. And so they, I didn't have to go to uh, Lackland. Which is where, their basic training? That, that's their Superman U. That's where they build them up. 
Right. Then, these guys come out of there looking like Superman, you know. Um, but uh, I, I, they do that to make sure they don't fail jump school, they don't fail scuba school, they don't fail any of the courses. Right. Because it makes them look bad. Sure. So they do that. And But I was already scuba trained. I was already uh, jump trained and everything else. Sure. So, so they, they bypassed that school for me, and I went straight to Kirkland in New Mexico in Santa Fe, uh, uh, Albuquerque. And uh, when I was there, they put me in charge of the team. So and that training there is it a training facility or is yeah, that an it's actual a training. base? No, so it's an train? actual base. It's yes. an actual base, but it's a training facility, and that's where the pararescue guys go. And uh, they teach you in mountain rock climbing and all that. But I already had that. I already I was climbing long before I even went there. Um, and then they teach you in uh, rough terrain parachuting. And then parascuba, parachuting with full scuba gear and everything. They teach you all that stuff. Then they teach you how to work on the Hueys, how to be a crew member, and how to, uh, like, you're practically a loadmaster. But they teach you in the Hueys. They teach you in the H3, which is the Jolly Green, and right. the H53, which is the Super Jolly, and then the C-130s air- aircraft. So uh, That's a the, lot of training. It's a lot of training. It, it's really, it's not an easy course. It's, it's the toughest course in the military to be a PJ. Sure. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, when I was there, like I, I was telling you, uh, the I had these guys and it was freezing out, and they didn't. Not all of them had their proper jackets to wear, <laughs> so I had all the guys out here, you know, my guys that were all dressed, and I had the I had a jacket, they had the jackets, but there was four guys that didn't, and I told him, I said, "What have you got? I don't want you getting sick," and he goes, uh, "All we got is our flight jacket." So I said, okay, go get your flight jackets, put them on, come on. So they came out with their flight jackets on with their blues, which Ooh. is a real no-no. So I had a space between them. I had the four guys behind them. Right. And so we're running to school, you know. Sure. And we get up there. Because running is a part of your training oh, acumen yeah. every day. You run everywhere. Yeah. So, But when I was there, well, I'll get that in a second. But um, anyway, so they go up to one of the guys wearing the jacket. He goes, what are you doing wearing your flight jacket with your blues? Oh, Sergeant Jones said it was okay, sir. <laughs> I'm, I'm going... <laughs> What? <laughs> I said, that's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, oh, was I not supposed to do that, Sergeant? <laughs> you know, yeah. You're supposed to say anything. Don't sit there and blame it on somebody else. You know, what happened to this team integrity, you know? Yeah, indeed. So anyway, so they came over to me and he goes, we want to talk to you in the office. I go in the office. They dropped me for 1,500 push-ups. Took me a day and a half to do them. <laughs> Welcome to PJ school. Right. So then I walk into the room, you know, my arm's dragging, my yeah, neck yeah. is dragging on the ground and I walk in there and I just look at those guys. The guy that said that, I go, I thought you were my buddy. <laughs> we're still good buddies. Yeah, so you complete the training and then at some point you begin to do some missions and the one in particular that comes to mind was Mount Helen. Oh, uh, I had a bunch of them. Yeah, I was one of the rescuers on Mount St. Helens when it well, blew. Okay, well, let's take us back just a little bit because people, when I think about Mount St. Helens, I think of the volcano, the mass, the mount, movies that followed, and yeah. they never talked about PJs. So that was the guys that did the rescues, of course. But, yeah, I think it's a three o third or something up there, three o fourth. It's up in uh, Oregon. So up again, in, in uh, your Portland. spare time, your unit just happens to ship north, and you find yourself there in the middle of all this. Yeah, no, I volunteered to go. Yeah, they said, "Hey, but they're looking because well, the guys, <laughs> the guys up there were working their butts off, you know, yeah. and they were getting tired." Yeah, there was a sack man, not sack man. Uh, uh, big Dick the Bagman, Big Dick the Bagman, we called him. Every time he went on a mission, he always bagging them, you know, bringing the bodies back and back. Well, Ooh, kind of a bad terminology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but he was a fireman as well, so he was really a cool guy. 
uh, they do a lot of rock climbing and ice climbing and mountain climbing. So we, I did a lot of climbing on Mount Hood and ice work and everything on Hood and sure. everything up there. Um, so you volunteered but, to go up for that mission yeah, so because the PJs were helping civilian authorities with getting the body, get, getting remains or finding anybody alive and stuff like that. So what I did is uh, they said that we got to be careful because they can't get the helicopters on down low to the ground. They can't because of all the ash. Right. So what I did is this is, hey, I got an idea. I said, we can repel in and we can come out on strings. So I went to the riggers loft and had them make up uh, like six sets of uh, uh, stable rigs. And much nicer than the ones we had. You know? and <laughs> and so, a stable and, rig for, for our listeners that are first-time listeners is a... The strings, the ropes. We, it's, it's in a bag. There's a sandbag and a metal bar on the bottom of the bag. And then you, all your rope is woven in, in there so it doesn't get into a, a bird nest when you right. drop it. And so they drop it, and it's got hooks on the bottom, and you're wearing a harness all the time. So and when your harness on, is part of the stable rig system at that point. Right. You just hook it up, and then they just pick you up and take it off. you got to hook it up underneath your legs. So um, so I, I had all those rigged up. So we go out there, and we're looking. We couldn't find any. We we're, were actually looking for the sheriff's brother who was out there in a station wagon. But uh, that blast was so tremendous that it took a D8, uh, a D8 or a D10, I think it was a D8 or a D10 Caterpillar tractor, flipped it end over end six times. Whoa. You know, but one of the things I thought was amazing is they, they were drilling wells. There was a couple of areas where they're drilling wells up right. there. And the well derricks were standing straight up. They were there. They didn't get knocked over or anything. Whereas the trees that just knocked down trees on the side of a mountain just knocked them over well those trees that you see when you see those trees that are laying down like yeah, toothpicks yeah. the tops of the trees are gone all the branches are gone and what that is those trees are only like 50 feet from where they were standing it was just like whoom and they fell over <laughs> yeah and and everything from those trees where it's vacant yeah those were all disintegrated just completely disintegrated whoa you know, and the mud flows. I mean, you, 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 we were flying over because we were using H3s. Right. We were flying, or no, no, I'm sorry, take back. We were using Hueys. So when we were flying over, you can see animals in the river that are dead. You know, sure. There, and logs coming down from the mud slides, bringing down logs and everything, and some of the trees down and stuff. I mean, it was, it was the most, uh, um, devastation. De yeah. I've never seen anything like that. It was like an atomic bomb, you know. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, the Spirit Lake, because they were they were afraid of a they were afraid of a, a what they call a um, a flash a black flash or red flash or something you know where it would blow up again. Right. So that was that was one of the reasons we had the rigs. Um, but that lake was half covered. It was a huge lake and it was a half filled in. No kidding. You know, and then uh, you could see steam coming up all over the place, and there were chunks of ice that came down because it looked like the moon. It was all gray. And when the chunks of ice were flying through the air and came down, they made these craters. It looked just like the moon. And when the ice was uh, boiling and melting, you, you got this steam coming out of them. So it was, uh, I got a lot of pictures of it. It's, uh, you know oh. me, I take my, pull oh, my camera out, yeah. click, 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 you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. So that, that was one of the missions there. And, um, and then, uh, let me see, there was uh, the space shuttle. Um, I remember when Johnny Stevens and I were... Uh, Working, we, we were saying, you know, we were, we were talking to our boss, Al Richmond. said, you know, boss, they're going to need PJs for that space shuttle. He says, they're going to have some kind of a rescue system. He goes, well, work on it. So we just irritated the dog poo out of NASA. <laughs> said, hey, we're here for you. We're here for you. We're calling back up. 
Hey, uh, Rhea, we're, we're here for you. You know, sure. Dr. Seddon, it was Ray, Ray Seddon. She, she married uh, Hoop, uh, Hoot Gibson. Really? Yeah. We, I know we, 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 we bumped into each other two or three times since then. Yeah. Hoot, just for the record, was a recon guy out of CCN. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, Hoot Gibson was a, was a, a real classic astronaut guy. He was a character. But they got married. I think that's the same one. But okay, but that's amazing. So anyways, through, through lobbying, you get asked to say, okay, when the shuttle comes in, we're going to need help. And yeah. so what exactly, how would the PJs aid well, and abet NASA? Well, what they did is they finally called us up and said, okay, we need you. We have to train you to do some training. So they flew us to White Sands, New Mexico, and we trained with the astronauts there. We trained with uh, Rhea Seddon, who's a medical doctor, and uh, some other thing. And then Anna Fisher, the first mother in space. Right. And then Jim Bajan, who's uh, also a medical doctor. And he later became a flight surgeon for the pararescue section up in Oregon. <laughs> and now he's in practice back east. Yeah. Uh, but they all went up. And Anna Fisher is the one I worked with mostly. And I saw Anna just about a year and a half ago. I saw her at one of the Space Fest things. She wanted to take pictures of the pictures I showed her. I said, no, you just keep those pictures. I've got copies. So, so. your training was to do what when the shuttle well, we came back? We had to learn how to take them out of the spacesuits. That was the big thing. Because when if somebody's in a spacesuit, the first thing everybody wants to do is open up the face mask and talk to them. Right. Are you okay? And that's the worst thing you can do. You suck their eyeballs out, you know. Because you still have a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Yeah. So what you got to do is you got to take the glove off first. You take the glove off, leaves all the pressure, and then you can open the face mask, talk to them, check them out, get them out of the spacesuit, feel underneath, make sure their spine's okay. Because if they're ejecting, because STS-1, 2, and 3 had ejection seats in it. There was only two. Oh, is that right? Yeah. STS-1 was, um, was Bob Crippen and John Young. STS-2 was uh, Engels and Truly. STS-3 was Lausma and Fullerton. Wow. And Jack Lausma, and I've met Jack Lausma a few times too after afterwards. <laughs> so those are those missions. And then you also had, before we wrap up this one story, I remember the one where you had to go out as a PJ to rescue a guy with appendicitis and you had to oh, refuel yeah. going back to base. You had to do a pre-surgery, pre-op uh, surgery, a procedure. And then also you couldn't go high and they were refueling and you're... Uh, I guess it was as soon as an H3, you're at yeah. only 50 feet off the water and they're refueling you 100 feet. 100 feet. Oh, feet 50, off 100, but they're still refueling. Well, I'll, okay, so after the space shuttle thing and everything, uh, we went back. We did, uh, let me see, it was, um, it was Johnny Stevens and I, and Johnny was the team leader on that mission. It was the very first jump mission, actual jump mission for pararescue uh, for the 129th. So we flew out. Uh, a thousand miles out, they refueled the uh, the H3s. There was two C-130s. One was flying us out. So let me just back up the tape for one second. The 129th was a PJ a unit yeah. based where? Uh, out of Moffat. It okay. Was Moffat Naval Air Station. And it's so Air Force, but it's right. Moffat Naval So you're Air Station. there. You get a phone call that says, hey, we need yeah. help a thousand miles away. Yeah, it's Scott Air critical. Force Base. And so the H3 has refuel capabilities. Yeah. So while it's flying out, they're getting refueled going out, and your mission is what? What What do you find at your mission target? Well, what the, when we're flying out, we're talking to doctors. Right. And the doctors are giving all kinds of information, what to do, what not to do, check this, check that. 
This is the and the person your the person you're going to pick up is an appendectomy. Uh, no, he had a ruptured appendix. Oh, okay. But, so so we flew out and we get out there and then it was the um, I can't remember the name of the ship, but it was a it was a it was a Taiwan Taiwan ship and they were bringing the Honda cars over. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we went out there. It was thirty foot seas. It was really rough seas. Whoa. So we parachuted in. And the other C-130. You parachute into the ocean. Yeah. Then you climb aboard a ship in yeah. 30-foot waves. Yeah. Just so we got that for the record. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. But the, the other C-130 is flying out, and he's refueling the H-3 all the way out. Right. Because we can't leave this guy in the ship. we got to get him out of there. Yeah. Because he's got a ruptured appendix. So but when we parachute in, I'm coming down the parachute, and I'm looking up at the top of the water up here, the wave. I'm not in the water yet. You know, I'm still coming down, and I'm going... Whoa, <laughs> you know, this that's is a heck re- of a wave. It's a heck of a wave. I mean, and they were peaking. They were peaking. It was really nasty seas. So we get in there. And so I'm trying to, I had to wait to get to the top of the wave so I could find out where the dinghy was. Right. Because you drop your canopy. Right. And you just swim with your gear on. So you, this is why you got to be strong in a pararescue. You got to swim with, I got the medical gear on. I've got my uh, pack tray on, you know, and I got all this other junk on me, rafts and everything else with you. And so we're swimming over to the boat. I'm swimming over to the boat. I, I see the boat and I'm waiting for the boat to come back down again. I grab it like this and it goes back up again and it goes to the top of the wave. I can see all the way underneath the boat. I'm going, oh, this is not cool. <laughs> so all of a sudden the boat goes back down again and the wave is such a peak that I just fall into the boat. That's I, a nice fall. Yeah, I just fall right in. And now the problem is, is that the, the guy that's trying to get the motor, the motor's not running. They can't get the motor running. So we're out there floating around, going crazy, up bouncing around. And finally, they get the thing going, and the eyes, guys are getting seasick. The merchant marines are getting seasick Whoa. in this little dinghy. And then with the wind blowing, it's all blowing all over us. And we're thinking, oh, this has got to be one of the worst missions ever. So we finally get the boat. We go over to the ship. Now, when you get on the ship, there's a door on the side of the ship, and a ladder comes out. So what you got to do is you got to wait for the biggest wave to get as high as you can on that ladder. Grab that ladder and all of a sudden the boat just goes away. (laughs) Right. And then you climb up there and I'm crawling in there and I'm just puking my guts out climbing in. Is that right? Oh, I'm so sick. I tell you, don't every donuts before a mission flying out. I tell you. <laughs> Particularly with thirty foot waves. Oh, we didn't expect that. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> so we're, now I can just see these these guys that are saying, you know, uh, uh, these guys came to save us. <laughs> yeah, you're puking or you got out. So I'm waiting for Johnny to come up on the ladder. Yeah. Johnny comes up on a ladder. He grabs a ladder. A bigger wave comes up. The boat hits him, knocks him off the off the ladder into the boat. Oh. Goes. He tries it again. Gets knocked off again. Goes in, and he goes up again, grabs the ladder, finally makes it in. He comes up. So we get up there, and we get up there, and we're, we're treating this guy with uh, Ansef and some other pain meds and some other stuff. And uh, he wants us to open him up, cut him. So we got him. We put him in the, the chopper, comes over, lowers the Stokes litter. We put him in a sleeping bag. Our sleeping bags have, like, Velcro on the outside edges. Okay. So you just put him down, and you put the other bag over it and just zip it up. Put goggles on him, put earmuffs on him cover them up and they hoist them up inside once he's in then they drop the penetrator the still going through the 30 foot waves and this yeah, well, the ship, we're on the ship with the ship yeah so okay but the, the ship sure. the ship you know the waves are coming this way the ships are always at an angle this way so they're not going like this or okay. like this they're, they're kind of going like this 
Oh, good. Yeah. So, so they go ahead and, and they bring us up on the penetrator. We get in there and we're flying 100 feet off the water going to Coos Bay, Oregon, which is only 950 miles or so away. So we're going up that way. And I'm, and the guy's got his, he's pulling his pants off his underwear. He's pulling his underwear off his, off his belly. Because of the pain. Because of the pain. Because he was expanding. You know, the gas was building up inside there. That's why you can't go up in the aircraft. You got to be at 100 feet. So explain that just a little bit further. Well, gas expands as you go up in altitude. Right. So we got to keep them down low. So you notice in the stormy weather, you're flying at 100 feet. Yeah. And then. The helicopter is getting refueled by the C-135s at that point? No, no, no. It's C-130s. Our C-130s refuel the helicopters. They, okay. Yeah. They got big, huge tanks in the middle of them. Right. So they, they go ahead and refueling. And we had to refuel, I think it was two or three times to get to Coos Bay, Oregon. Wow. So we get there, right? And they got all these film crew out there. This is, I'd love to get this video. But the, <laughs> the, all the film crews out there. And, and so we're jumping out. We're in our, our bib overalls, you know, like. Yeah. You know. We're pararescue. rescue. Yeah. <laughs> Doing a little if you display. take care of your patient, you, oh, you yeah. do your profiles. Oh, yeah. We do our little thing. But you also had to do a pre-operation uh, prep on this guy, right? No, that was another guy. Okay. That was another guy. So we had another jump mission where we fly out there. And this time it was really nice. Nice weather. I won't get into what I said to the colonel. But right. Yeah, let's just continue to march here. <laughs> yeah. So we, we fly out. And this time I'm in charge of the jump. So we go out there and... Where uh, I see the ship, and it was a Sugar Islander, the one that brings the CNH Sugar over from Hawaii to Carquinas Bridge okay. in California. So uh, we go out there and we, we parachute in. It was like without incident. We just parachute in, we get down in the water, uh, the dinghy picks us up, we go up, we get up in there. And uh, the guy had an inguinal hernia and a bowel obstruction. And so it probably a strangulated bowel. And so what we did is we took care of him, gave him some pain meds and stuff like that. And, and um, you had comma with the doctors in the process. Yes, we're talking at the to the doctors where you're flying to yeah. with this patient. No, we had we we were talking to the doctors at a Scott Air Force Base. Okay. Yeah, so they're they're filling us in and telling us what's going on, how to treat him, what to do, what not to do. You know, we we get, but but we have to do a workup on the patient, and then right. we tell him what we find with the patient. Yeah, so in once, terms of pain, what, any kind of yeah. body irregularities. Yeah, pretend like, I'm yeah. a comma guy. I'm not a medic trained like you were as a as a pararescue. And what does that mean? What exactly do you go through? You examine, you feel his body. Oh, you go from head to toe. You 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 check everything. You check the spine. You check everything out. But in somebody like that, we knew we knew pretty much what was happening. He we didn't fall or anything right. or get injured. So you know, there's no broken bones or anything. So. Um, Yes, that's usually when you find somebody who's like unconscious or something and right. they can't talk to you. Sure. Car accidents, plane crashes. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, so we, we took care of the guy and uh, uh, we had we gave him IVs uh, to give him some fluids. Uh, we tried to do a lavage and try to go down, put an NG tube, put the NG tube, go down in the stomach. All we kept doing was just taking out bile, you know, because right. all, all the bile was building up in his stomach and to keep him from vomiting because sure. you might... You know, and he might uh, uh, aspirate it into his lung. So we get get rid of all that stuff. And, and uh, so we stayed with him. We just stayed with him until we got to Hawaii. And so when we got to Hawaii, they, they brought him off the ship and took him in. And, and like I said, I got a nice letter from the doctor uh, that operated. They said they took him into surgery right away and said they didn't have to do any preps or anything because we had him all set up, ready to go for surgery. Just another yeah. day as a pararescue man. Yeah, just another PJ thing. Well, um, we're at that point in time. Well, the we got first, some others. The first two hours flew by. Well, give you, I'll take one more power rescue. Oh, okay. So we had, had another one one time. We were flying. They used to call me Hawkeye. 
because I, I could pick up no guys. No more carrot top? No, well, that was I was in special forces. I know. <laughs> wild carrot, <laughs> the wild carrot. <laughs> so anyway, so th- this time we were flying out. We were doing, uh, oh, okay, we were doing, uh, I've had a couple of them, quickies. I've gone out in the H3, we're doing, um, where you jump in, you know, uh-huh. low and slows, you jump in the water at night. Yes. You jump in, then they come back and they drop the penetrator down, and you're supposed to get on it, get the penetrator, and they hoist you back up. And it's for the pilots as well as for the PJs because the uh, what they do is they drop flares out in the water at, at a different angles, and that gives them keeps them from getting uh, uh, vertigo. And so all of a sudden, this guy's going out there, and the waves going up and down hid some of the flares. He gets vertigo. So we're going up on the penetrator. Bill Thompson and I were going up on the penetrator. All of a sudden, the chopper just drops, dropped right down on top of us, landed right in the water. We just got off that penetrator, swam as far as we could out to make sure the rotors wouldn't hit us. Whoa. And so we got back up, and we came back, and uh, finally he got, he got control of it because they float. They, they, they can actually land on water. So, but they, they brought it back up again. They dropped the penetrator. We get back on the penetrator. They zip us up. They zipped us up so friggin' fast. I hit the belly of the friggin' helicopter about knocked me out. <laughs> <laughs> got us inside, got in there. That was the end of night penetrate, real live, live operations at night. They didn't want to try it anymore in case no somebody kidding. got hurt. Yeah. Uh, I imagine active duty probably does do it for actual training and stuff. But and you uh, did this all as an Air Force Reservist. No, National Guard. I was full time. I was okay. full time with the National Guard. Okay. Yeah, I drew two pays. I'm one of those double dippers, man. I got there. The, we go. I got the GS nine play <laughs> pay, and every time I got in an aircraft, I was on active duty, and that was over 300 days a year, about 340 days a year. No kidding. Yeah, I flew that much. Wow. I jumped sometimes anywhere, anywhere from two to six times a week. Uh, made jumps. We, you know, when parachutes came due to get redone. Sure. Oh, we just loaded them up. We just loaded them up and went out there and we'd jump in and they'd take another one off the truck. We'd just get back in the helicopter, go up, make another jump. We used to jump all the time. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> but we had another one where, uh, where I got the name Hawkeye was I'd be flying out and um, I, it would be a, a boat in trouble to get picking up a, like an ELT off of a boat. Right. And the boat's getting ready to crash into some rocks. And it was salmon fishermen. And uh, so we fly over and we contact the Coast Guard because we're in a C-130. There's no way we can get to them. And so the Coast Guard says, we got enough fuel for one pass. He goes, okay, we'll guide you in. They guided the, the Coast Guard in. And the boat was on its side and the guys were on the side of the hull standing there. And they brought them in. They got the guys out. And they sent us um, some salmon and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, sure. Us. Yeah. Because you had another, to guide them in in a timely fashion that would have sunk. And another time, there was a ship that sank off the coast of Philippines, and they sent us out there for rescue for that. And uh, we flew over, and I saw I saw the dinghy in the water. And so I, uh, as soon as I say, I go, I go, bingo, and they drop the flares. Except they, and they push a button, and they just let go of the C-130. And the C-130 just flies around, comes right back in the same position. And then they, that, that's how they can find them, so you don't lose where they are. Right. And so what we did is we dropped that. We have rafts. They drop the rafts and they have mm-hmm. cargo in the middle of it, like right. food and water and everything. And it's a big rope, and they drop it so that the wind will they'll they'll drift together. Either the draft their their raft will float into it, or these will float into them. And that's how they do that. And wow. they turn out to be boat people out of Vietnam. And we got a uh, an Australian ship to come over and pick them up. And they picked them up and took them to an appropriate place where they could be saved without wow. taking them back to Nam. The boat people. And what year was that? Uh, that had to be 79, I guess. Wow. Around 79, 80. Sure. 
We still had a lot of boat people coming out of Vietnam at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sir, uh, I think that we're getting to that point. Was there any final points that, uh, or any final thoughts you'd have after our little uh, discussion here? I really appreciate it. And uh, are we going to do more? Or? Uh, for now, this would be it for today. And any closing thoughts? And then we'll officially close up with a couple of final uh, closings. Well, the only thing, and probably after that, is why I went to school to become a doc. Right, that's and, important. Yeah, and a radiologist and. That's where I got all the money to go back to Nam. Certainly. I mean, everybody goes, wow, that's a lot of money. No, that's only one month's pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Until and, I retired. <laughs> at first, you went in as a chiropractor. You got bored with that and uh, said, I'll become a radiologist. Yeah. I went and did a three-year residency in radiology. Spent a lot of time at Mellicrod Institute of Radiology in St. Louis. Scarfalino Auditorium. I'd get up at 2 in the morning, make sure I was there on time. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, some of the leading radiologists in the world would be giving lectures there, and I wanted to be there to listen to them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've given lectures at symposiums. You know, you, I, I, as a resident in radiology, you have to you have to do papers. You got to publish some papers. Right. And you got to give uh, lectures. So I would I would I'd be giving lectures, and they, some of the leading radiologists in the world would be sitting out there, listening to me, hoping they don't ask you a question. And I did <laughs> have one. I got what was it uh, Nagant with Magant Nagant? I can't remember his name. It's been so many years. But he's one of the guys that wrote the the book on CAT scan on CT. In a big old fat book, and um, he asked me a question, and I'm going, "Oh no, yeah." I asked him, "You know, sir, I really don't know, but uh, I'll uh, I'll look into that and I'll get back to you later with that answer." You know, no kidding. Man, I tell you that because at one point you were handling, you'd review over a hundred X-rays a day or 150. Oh, the reason I retired is one day I did 276 cases and, <sighs> because everybody loved my reports. Sure. You know, I didn't put down degenerative changes of the spine. I told them what it was. If I saw degenerative change, there's like 355 different arthritis that can affect your joints. How many? About 350 different uh, arthritis. I think it's 355 arthritis okay. or 255 arthritis that can affect your joints. And um, uh, I would tell them which one it was, or at least give them a, a, a you know, a, a list of three. Sure. And it's going to be one of those three because some of them overlap. Yeah. You know, but there's lots of things, ochronosis, um, Wilson's disease. There's all kinds of stuff going to affect your joints, scleroderma. You know, it's not just rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. There's a lot more. So was it during your radiology training that you became interested in meteorites? Oh, I've always loved space. I always wanted to go into space. So, but, um, yeah, so I, I, I just started meteorite hunting. I started collecting, and uh, then I just started researching it, and then I started going out with, I found those people that go out look for them, and I went out with them. And my first meteorite was six hundred seventy-eight grams. And what does that mean to, to like a person like me? A meteorite looks to me like a regular stone, but to six hundred seventy-eight grams of a meteorite is is uh, well four hundred about four hundred fifty grams to a pound. Okay. So uh, it's it'll have flow lines on it. You know, this one had flow lines on it. I found it thirteen inches under the ground. Uh, I was running around with the metal detector, and right. and I found a 50 caliber slug, and I went around the bush, and I figured, oh, it's got to be another 50. But you got to dig them up. You got no choice. You got to dig them up. So I'm digging. I go down 13 inches, and all of a sudden I see the soil start turning rusty looking, and I go down a little bit more, and I go. So so that's what you look like. First time no in over 7,000 years that meteorite saw daylight. <laughs> First time in 7,000 years. Yeah, that meteorite came down about 7,000 years ago. So you've been doing a little meteorite hunting in your spare time? 
Yeah, that's what I do. I love meteorite hunting, going out there. <laughs> and now I've got a great gal at Jana that wants to go hunt, be my partner. We're going to go out there and hunt meteorites. So that's going to be fun. Wow. So we, we should, we'll, for now, Besides we'll close Nate. on this positive note for SOGCast number two. Well, we're at that phase here. Uh, Jim Shorten Jones has left the studio. He's on his way back to uh, Arizona. We want to thank him again. That story is just amazing. And uh, we're doing a little post-show uh, follow-up that we did with SOGCast 1. And, of course, I have a mystery high technician with me, Tom the Mystery Man. And, uh, Tom, that's the first time you've heard Jim's story. Is that just flipping amazing or what? I mean, I'm biased. I know you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, it actually is the very first time I've ever even heard of the story. So, and I've read a lot of a lot of stuff that's out there on SOG, and I missed that soft rep, and I didn't see it <laughs> until you told me it was in soft rep, and then I went to read it, but I couldn't because then I had to register. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, um, as I said during the broadcast, just quickly, um, my fourth book would be Saw Chronicles Volume 2. And this will be either the first or one of the first stories that will be in the book. And we're officially starting it now, writing it. And be, you know, Jen's been kind enough to share a story with me, some of the details that uh, are beyond what any, anything else has been printed. And his stories are amazing. And someday I'm encouraging him to write his book. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, if he starts you know, it's going to take at least 10 years to write that thing with the stories. It really just scratched the surface. Yeah. And it was funny because, you know, talking to him beforehand. And yeah. He said that. And I'm still trying to figure out which one it was. He <laughs> said that the, the, the insane mission. Yeah. And I heard at least two missions today. And I'm still lost as to which one was the insane one. Right. Which one was more insane than the other one? Because they both. To me, when you look at the grand scheme of it, you, one, you took three, two other guys and yourself and went out. Yeah, and, a three-man you know, bright light. Yeah. Excuse me? I believe it was T-shirts <laughs> and shorts is what we discussed earlier. So, you know, <laughs> lightweight and fast. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one is, is I mean, the, the fact that you sacrifice or, uh, you know, potentially sacrifice the lives to go after those two pilots. And not just that, but not just to carry on and push as far as you can. But then to also feel it, you know, and you, you, you know, you hold that inside. That's, I mean, that's for all those years that means so much that, you know, that what you guys went through and what you guys did, it had meaning to you and it still does today. And it shows by what Jim did by going back in 2002, 2017 and continues, continues oh, yeah. to stay in touch with the families uh, and with uh, DPAA and trying to get, you know, results and get something so that he has some, you know like a sense of closure with that indeed you know and going 100 miles on uh elephants and yeah e eating eating frogs <laughs> yeah and living <laughs> off is, the land no. as, as, we're, as we're heading north up to up to the crash site it definitely fills in on the snake eater aspect yeah. right that's Except the snake the eater side of special forces <laughs> exactly indeed. a lot of that training came in handy <laughs> between yeah. that and the pararescue training and then <laughs> go, yeah and then so here you have a guy who does all these operations uh you know, in Vietnam with an A camp with Mappy Sog, gets out, decides, hey, I'm bored. Let me go be a PJ. Yeah. So I go be a PJ. And then what? <laughs> so now I'm going to go to Mount St. Helens because, you know, I haven't had enough excitement. Then I'll I'm just a, volunteer, go up there and. Yeah. yeah. And then, hey, you know, NASA needs me. Let me go volunteer to go do that. And then, hey, wait, there's we, a guy in a ship I need to go rescue in 30 foot swells. 
Yeah. And to fly a thousand mile getting refueled two or three times along the way. Oh Amazing. my gosh. And nothing short of extraordinary for yeah. a human to be able to continually sacrifice and continually volunteer to do more <laughs> and more and never say no. Just you know, yeah. that work ethic, that just that ethic in life to help is, is phenomenal. It's what we need more of nowadays. Indeed, indeed, I, I agree. And to think that it all started by going into the Navy where he had a lot of in-country experiences and then going to SF to run with SOG and then to come back and to train future SOG members. Right. And then this whole thing with the PJ side of the coin. The first time we talked about it, you know, my brains were all over the ceiling. He just blew them out with those stories. It's just incredible. Yeah, and then misses his plane home to Viet- from Vietnam. Because Twice. Because he went out on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was just a training mission but it was one that really counted yeah yeah we're going to catch some more some, some more POWs more POWs yeah 16 was it the total 16 POWs I think that was around this total give or take two or three <laughs> how many did you get zero oh. I was really close <laughs> I saw potentials potential POWs up and down the trail we took pictures of them but <laughs> never brought one home like the guys like Jim did and then of course the legend out of uh, Contum is just uh, Meadows. Yep. You know Sergeant Dick Meadows, <laughs> who still has a record. I think thirteen of POWs off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh really? Oh yeah. Jeez. That's our SOG legend there. Yeah, because I know uh, you know Dick Thompson tried a bunch of times. Yes. <laughs> you know, listening to his podcast with Jocko and the, the sheer amount of times he attempted to get somebody and could yet to bring him back. Yes, and we're referring to Jocko Podcast 204, 205, and 206. If you haven't listened yet, in your spare time, you're driving somewhere, check it out, because Jocko and Dick really got into it. And as of more than once, when Dick was telling about some of his stories, Jocko was totally amazed. And that's one of the things that uh, has been surprising during this process is Jocko is a combat vet. Mm -hmm. They saw heavy combat in Ramadi. And then he hears our stories to see him being amazed by it all and then going forward to caption him and now to get him out through his social media is yep. an opportunity for us to get the word out that uh, it's uh, unprecedented. Yeah. We and, also have to give George fine. up for his uh, POW that they captured and got into the helicopter. <laughs> right. But then let them become a bird. Indeed. <laughs> the NVA just ran and jumped out the door. <laughs> Gotta go. Without, forgot her parachute. Yeah. <laughs> well, anything, any other reaction pieces here? And, and uh, for our third, um, our third SOG cast, we're trying to line up Nick Brockhausen, who has written two books. He's got a third one in, in the process. The first one was We Few, and the second one was In the Tall Grass. Again, he came to CCN at the end of 1970, and he carried an RPD for most of his recon missions. And he does a freestyle of writing, an extreme of consciousness style that you really have to be smart to be able to pull off. He pulls it off. And it's like Lynn Black's book, uh, yeah. W Whiskey Foxtrot Tango. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. There we go. <laughs> WTF. <laughs> yeah. We all know what that really means. It but, means another uh, day in SOG. Indeed, just another day in SOG. <laughs> And so we're lined up, Nick. Hopefully, get him in here soon, and um, we'll do that. And we got a few more 
Uh, we'll be lining up interviews with people that did the first SOG Halo jumps into Laos and other follow-up means because uh, our goal is to get as many SOG stories uh, for Jocko as we can to be posted for his ever-expanding audience. And so I think we'll close out here. Yeah. And don't forget, go to Jocko's website, and you can see his products there. And then uh, in the spare time, you can go to our newly revised Saw Chronicles website at sawchronicles.com. And it's been revised where you can see our three books, Across the Fence, On the Ground, and Saw Chronicles Volume 1. And like I said, this week we started Volume 2. Not quite sure what it'll take in times of getting it off the press, <laughs> but we started. You got to start somewhere. Exactly. So with that thought in mind, we're closing now. And we thank again all of our service members that serve our country today, those that served in the past, and to those who will enlist in the future, our paramedics, doctors, anybody that's helping our country out there today, Border Patrol, law enforcement. Have I forgotten anybody? No, just anybody working nowadays. Anybody working Even for our services, country. everything, yeah. We salute you all and thank you for your service. God bless America. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.